Blank Jack with Griffin and David. Blank Jack with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Jack. Hello, my name's Forrest Gump. You want a podcast? I could listen to about a million and a half of these. My mama always said life was like a feed full of podcasts. You never know what you're going to get. There you go. Very nice. I mean. Very nice. I mean. What a nice, gentle opening. I I even, I feel uncomfortable having done that. Having done the voice for five seconds. Poorly. But even I was like, if I, if I, if I try to make it more accurate, I'm only going to feel more uncomfortable. Don't you think every movie should start with the main character sitting down on a bench and starting to tell the story of the movie to whoever's listening? Hello, my name's Spider-Man. <laughs> right? That's how it should exactly. start. Exactly. <laughs> Hello, my name's Buzz. Buzz Lightyear. Like, just Hello. like always started that way. My name's John Wick. I sure am <laughs> myth they killed my dog. <sighs> my mom always said dogs aren't for killing. Hello, my name is Michael Corleone. <laughs> uh, here's here's an immediate uh, point of contrast, okay? Um, sure. Uh, I, I did uh, an uncharacteristic amount of research for this episode in that I read both uh, original Forrest Gump books. You read Forrest Gump by Winston Groom, the recently deceased Winston Groom. Very recently deceased. Passed away about a week or two ago from when we were recording. Right, and you read Gump and Co. His uh, his sequel. I'm, I I will do a little comparison segment on it because I don't want to spend the entire episode relating everything back. But the relationship between both of these books to this movie is fascinating. Here's just an immediate point of comparison. Okay, this is the opening line to Winston Groom's Forrest Gump novel. Let me say this: being an idiot is no box of chocolates. Mm. Mm. that is the line in the book mama never says anything about it mm. that other comparison is never made it's almost the exact opposite of the moral that the movie starts with and yet a box of chocolates is involved they kept the box that's everything you need to know you can extrapolate everything else about how this book was adapted into this movie from that like everything that exists in the book exists in that type of form in relation to what we got in the final movie. In the movie, Mama, who's like this soothsayer, who has all these like sterling little pearls of wisdom that he carries with him in his back pocket, it's it's this general philosophy for life. You don't know what you're going to get. You got to just go with the flow. In the book, it's him announcing, I'm a fucking idiot and my life is difficult. That's what he's saying. Hey, man. Being an idiot is no box of chocolate. And then he goes on to say, like, what's the exact phrasing here? Now, they say folks supposed to be kind to the afflicted. But let me tell you, it ain't always that way. Even so, I got no complaints because I reckon I done live a pretty interesting life, so to speak. Sure. That's the entire attitude of the book. This guy who self-identifies as a moron is like, it's been rough. But now that I look back on it, sure lived through a lot of weird things. Right. And, and and he speaks with, introduce our podcast, but he speaks with an accent, right? Like the book transliterates his accent, like grammatically into the text, essentially. It, the book is as if he wrote it. It's not as if he's saying it to you, if that makes sense. 
So it's just like riddled with weird phrases and typos and improperly structured sentences and it's stuff. Like a, it's like a Clockwork Orange. Like the book, the novel of Clockwork Orange is written in this kind of like train spotting. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It is like Clockwork Orange, which is, that's the other bizarre thing. Look, let's just unpack it. We got to unpack it. The, 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 this fucking movie. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Blank Tech with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. It's a podcast about filmographies, directors to have massive success early on in their career. And sometimes they're given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear. And sometimes they 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 fucking win best picture and become right. the they, third highest grossing movie of all time and continue to confound us to this day. They they hyper clear. They hyper clear. Yeah. This was this is about the biggest clear possible. How much did this movie cost? Was the how blank a check? Fifty five million. It was a fairly blank check for considering the the elevator pitch for this movie and there was a good story i don't know if you caught it that happened recently that hank shared about the making of this movie but we'll get into that this is a mini series on the films of robert zemeckis the famous poppy z it's called podcast away and and this is this is the the key fulcrum point right this is the point of no return for better or worse this is the big transitional moment in his career yes. where he becomes the oscar winning uh, top tier, A list, sterling, Hollywood beloved, prestige filmmaker. I guess so. It's weird though, because I mean, it is, it's right in the middle of his career, you know, at least his career to date. I guess he will just continue to make movies. He's already an absolute A list director when he's making this movie. Yeah. And it's not like he ever made as we've mentioned before, a best picture nominee or got a best director nominee ever again. No. No. But yes, he gets to make movies for life because of Forrest Gump, even more so than Back to the Future. He directs two more very serious Best Actor nominees. And outside of that, none of his movies really connect at the Oscars ever again, despite him forever being seen as the most Oscar-y kind of filmmaker. To the degree that like Charlie Kaufman will dunk on him as being the like, What's the funniest name that can pop up in the end credits of a fake movie? Right. Although supposedly he ran that by Zemeckis or whatever. But yes, yes, sure, exactly. sure. But it's it it connotes something. There's a reason that joke is funny. It's funny that his his name shows up. Yes. And Zemeckis wasn't insulted by it. He approved of it. But it's still Zemeckis right. understands what his public yeah. perception is in that way. Even though at this point he's actually. One of Hollywood's most avant-garde storytellers, but that's a story I for mean, a different day, right now. But that's yeah. kind of, but this is also kind of the beginning of him. Look, I mean, my big argument that I was thinking is that, like that this movie and Welcome to Marwin are like cousins, and they're like they're like first cousins who have hooked up. Like they're very close. They're they're closer than people might consider. They're kissing cousins. I I think they're very much two sides of the same coin, especially in. The, the filters they put on their source material. One book, yes. one real life yes. story. Telling stories about, you know, people who are quote unquote different. Yes, the oddballs on the outskirts of society who become inspirational figures to us. And in both cases, it's he's, he's taken a power sander to those original pieces when he adapts them. Um, but our guest today, uh, I got so amped. I feel like perhaps... Did you volunteer as soon as it looked like Zemeckis was winning or had won? I think so, right? I believe so. Yeah, I, I volunteered to do something, and then David suggested 
Forrest Gump. And I quickly agree because I have a funny story involving this movie that we can get to later. I think you you asked for it. You, Did I you, ask for I don't Forrest think Gump? I, yeah, I didn't suggest it. I mean, I, I really was just sort of like, you know, take your pick of Zemeckis. That was all. Because I, I remember just being so amped when David said to me, like, Jamel wants to do Forrest Gump. And it just felt like, not, not that you necessarily describe yourself this way, but I feel like, Jamel, you are one of the best chroniclers of America in, in so many ways. <laughs> the way you write about current day America and what, uh, like, you know, sort of uh, uh, ails us and uh, how we're doomed to repeat these cycles, your perspective on history, the echoes of these things going on forever. It just felt like that that is the person we need to try to untangle this movie because I don't know how to fucking do it. Uh, Jamel Bowie from the New York Times is here. Well, thank you uh, for the kind words. Also, let me say, I don't know how to fucking do it either. This is a strange either, movie. I, this is a weird freaking movie. Agreed. It is a weird one. But I'll say this. Jamel, someone of your qualifications and intelligence admitting that you don't know how to untangle this movie makes me feel less dumb. <laughs> I can untangle it. I'll untangle it for you guys. I feel pretty confident. I feel good. I'm feeling good. Uh, what's your funny story about this movie? Because I have a, a, a similar kind of weird story. The film is Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. It's funny. This this movie, um, its sort of reputation, I think, at this point, is it's like a boomer nostalgia play. Yeah. And that, um, you know, people born, people old enough to remember the 60s, but not old enough to have experienced the 60s, love this movie. Um, but strangely, because of when it came out in 95, I also feel like older millennials are very familiar with this movie. I somehow remember yes. maybe not seeing this in theaters, but I remember seeing it a ton as a kid. On cable all the time. Yeah. 100%. It was just know. very much part of my of the movies I saw as a kid. Forrest Gump was one of them. A movie for the whole family, even right. though it's not. You right, know what right. I mean? Like, But like almost everyone I know my age saw this movie with their family yeah. a bunch. Same. You know, like they, they, they would rent it from Blockbuster all the time or it'd be on TV or whatever. Like, and yeah. like you consider watching this whole movie with your family, this movie that begins with Sally Field fucking a principal loudly you know, to get her son into school. And you're like, Jesus. But anyway, Jamel, back to you. I'm sorry. This actually is a great lead into my story here. So when I was in college uh, for two summers, uh, when I was in college, I was a summer camp counselor, paid pretty well. I stayed on uh, campus at UVA and um, was a camp counselor. Didn't get a lot of backlash for this, Jamel. If, if <laughs> my experience tells me anything, talking about summer camp on this show is a, a death note. So go on, walk at your own peril. I was a, I was a, I was a counselor at a camp, not unlike the one you would have gone to, Griffin. A camp for like cool. gifted kids, for smart kids, or whatever. Cool. Um, and so I think it was my my first summer as a counselor. The set the the first it was a two week cycle for each group of campers, and the first Friday was like a movie night, and me and my buddy, who was also a counselor, I think we had decided it'd be fun to screen Forrest Gump, thinking exactly, oh, we saw this movie when we were kids. This is like a family movie. You know, a bunch of 13 and 14-year-olds should be able to enjoy this. We put this on in the auditorium on like a, you know, a, a big projection screen, and we're watching. We get to the Sally Field scene, and I'm just sort of like, you know, we didn't clear any of this with these kids as parents, but this should be fine. This is not too bad we get to the scene where uh uh 
Jenny and Forrest are in her college dorm room, and he uh, he like comes in his in her roommate's bath towel, and I was just like, "We're gonna get fucking fired. This is <laughs> we're gonna get fucking fired. We've made a terrible mistake. We should not have shown this movie to these kids. What were we thinking? I had totally forgotten at the time all of this stuff throughout the movie that is not family friendly." whatsoever um and uh you know we finished the movie the kids watched it uh and i did i didn't we didn't get fired but one parent did a comment to me when they were picking up their kid that it was interesting that we showed their children forrest gump interesting was how they put it that is that is the last time i saw this movie and i that would that would have been when i was 20 or so The, the last time i saw this movie was when i was nine years old I have not seen it since. I saw it one time before tonight. It was very much burned into my memory. And I had the experience watching it last night for this episode of, I cannot believe that I enjoyed this movie at the time. There is no way I understood 50% of what was happening. Like, there's no way I understood what was happening in that premature ejaculation scene, let alone all of the ways it comments on American history. Like, all of that was fucking flying over my head. And the idea that I watched that movie and was like, 10 out of 10 masterpiece. It's one of the greats. Put it on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> was that your reaction when you saw it at the time? You're like, yeah. this rules? Yeah. yeah. Look, here's, the, here's my quick version. My mother is French. A humble brag. Uh, when my, I was nine, my brother was six, and my sister had just been born. Uh, she wanted us to spend more time in France. So we went to the south of France for like three weeks uh, with her high school friend and his many children and his extended family, his in-laws and their kids and all the cousins and whatever. And there was like a house in the south of France where we all were. And uh, I was there with very limited interaction with other people who spoke English, essentially Mm. just uh, my parents, uh, my brother uh, and myself. Uh, My sister was an infant. And uh, these French kids who were rambunctious and want to play in the field all day and jump at the pool uh, activities I hated. Uh, and all I wanted to do was stay indoors and watch TV, which was in French, and I didn't speak it. There was a, a, the closest town had a video store, and the video store had one tiny shelf that was American movies with French subtitles. And so those just became, I guess we have to rent these for granted. My parents were very overprotective about what I watched, but it was like, what else? I, he won't do anything else. We got to rent these movies for him. There might have been four. The three I remember distinctly were um, Independence Day, Forrest sure. Gump, Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl. Hey, that sounds like a decent collection. That was like my whole fucking summer. I mean, the Monty Python one we rented multiple times. I watched it 8,000 times. In a- Penn Day, I probably watched twice. Forrest Gump, I watched once. Uh, after that, I started renting American movies in French. And there were a lot of big movies I saw for the first time dubbed in French, mm. uh, which is a weird cultural like tip I have of like seeing Wayne's World in French three times before I ever saw it in English. Uh, so it, it was like a big deal that my parents were letting me watch Forrest Gump, which I usually, I think they would have not let me watch Jamal for all the reasons you mentioned. But it was like, I assume there had to have been R-rated English language subtitled VHSs there that they would not let me see no matter what. And Forrest Gump felt like the one that was right on the edge. I think because 
they knew it is so sort of childlike in its approach to any everything that everything I, I didn't get, I wouldn't understand what I wasn't getting. I wouldn't ask questions about it. You just kind of go like, this is some weird, fantastical folly this man is going on. And watched it, was devastated by it, uh, found it very upsetting, uh, was perplexed when people told me they thought it was funny in the years ensuing. I was just like, uh, that's the saddest movie I've ever seen. It's a movie about misery. Uh, but, But it always stuck with me. And especially because I was watching it, it's a couple years after the Oscars. My dad keeps on coming in and going like, oh, oh, that's the famous line. That's the famous scene. This is the thing that everyone talks about. Like he kept on walking in and out of the room and underlining things for me, explained to me cultural importance. And I was such a Mad Magazine kid. Like I was so much a kid who was reading old issues of Mad Magazine and reading riffs on pop culture that I had never absorbed and then wanting to learn about the things that were being made fun of. The way the movie goes through American history in that way, I think I was just like really into like, oh, this gives me jokes I can make about shit, about different points in time. Uh, but just had not seen it since then. You know, 10 years later, whatever, in high school, I start realizing, oh, people hate this movie. Like cool people hate this movie. They think it's for cops. And then have just spent the time since then assuming I probably don't like this movie. Uh huh. I see. You never like rewatched it and were like, oh, this doesn't hold up for me. You still had the cherished childhood memory, but you just sort of assumed. Yeah. When I play back in my head, I'm like, that scene is, I'm going to hate that. Right. Sure. But just almost never had the compulsion to rewatch it. Um, my experience of Forrest Gump is I probably saw it once when I was young. Uh, I don't, I didn't like it. I was sort of confused by it. I like, I don't know. It creeped me out. I watched it again like five years ago. I watched it again tonight. I always cry at the end. It always gets me. It's hard. It's hard not to. The the, the sequence beginning with him getting to Jenny's apartment yes, yes, to the end yes. is sort of it's hard not to um, choke up. I think, I mean, I will, we can talk about it later, but I just think him asking the question if if his son is like him without even quite being able to say it but touching his you know chest is just unbearably devastating and is so well acted so that always so like i always sort of walk out of forrest gump you know quote unquote Mm kind of being like i get what is so undeniable about this movie like i sort of can understand what it's well you know how it became this sort of endlessly rewatchable phenomenon that beat Pulp Fiction and the Shawshank Redemption, you know, to Best Picture and all the, you know, like was Paramount's highest grossing movie ever, right, Griffin? Until like recently, like right until one of the Transformers, unless one of the Transformers overtook it, it might still be their number one. Like I, yeah, I, I you know, that like shit like that. I when I rewatched it, certainly was like, oh, I think this is like, you know, this is like being there. This is a uh, a quietly acidic movie. I, it, and that's just the only way I can make sense of it. And rewatching it today, uh, yesterday, like th- that, that's the only way I can understand this movie is that, you know, it is a deeply satirical movie, but it is fascinating that it was taken at face value. Like at the time I, I, I started, started watching this last night. My wife goes to bed early and we have a, a little toddler. So I usually a movie longer than an hour and a half gets split up between two nights and so we watched this is a long boy 
Yeah, first, we watched the first half last night, and I tweeted that this was a little more satirical than I had remembered. And I don't think I, I honestly, even as a college student, I'm not sure I was sort of old enough um, and self aware enough to like pick up on that stuff at the mm-hmm. time. Um, but it's totally there. Griffin, at the beginning, you mentioned that the movie very much sands down the edges of the novel, and this, like, these really not sands down is even uh, not even the right way to put it, sort of flattened so much of the the biting satire of the novel but it really feels as if the satire the, the concept is so satirical that you cannot completely take like extricate the the acidness from it and so just from the just from the jump when you have like your good-natured uh hero Named after the founder of the Ku Klux fucking Klan, yeah, and they right? they don't shy away from that. They right? don't, like that's, that's not hinted at, right? It's just it's just they they put it up front, and that to me, as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, this is right. This movie, although it's going to be saccharine and maudlin and like all those things later on, it is doing something here that isn't just nostalgia. I I don't disagree. Reading the book is bizarre, and I'll unpack it in a moment. But but you tweeted that last night, Jamel, and your mentions went like nuclear, and it made <laughs> me realize just how much of like a live wire this movie still is for people. Because it was just the arguments that were unfolding, and you would sort of respond to some people and go like, "I'm not disagreeing with you," and then they would get angry at that, you know, and then people would come thinking they were defending what you were saying, but they were actually interpreting it the wrong way. It's like this very bizarre sort of like, it almost feels like the movie is like a reflection pond or something in Mm. terms of like what people want to see in it. Because there is that thing of like, it has gotten flattened out to some degree. I mean, we're right. There's, there's the inherent DNA of what the book is trying to do, right? There's what Zemeckis is trying to turn it into, which it, it, there, there are strains that he cannot remove, but man, is this movie about as sort of transformative an adaptation as you can possibly get. Like, to some degree, reading the book, I always thought, oh, the book is a more intense, more acidic version of the movie. When in fact, the book is very much like, it's, it's like the kind of adaptation they parody in something like The Player, you know? Where it's just like, oh, you've just taken out every single thing. It's just the characters basically retain the same names and the same basic relationships. Um, And even I feel like the satirical points the book is trying to make are totally different than the things that Zemeckis is trying to do. But he has kept in it the satirical strain. It's just he's located a different pipeline. Well, I I haven't read the book, so I don't know. But I don't know. I think this is... I know. I think this is a deeply satire. The movie is a satire. The movie is a satire. But then there's also shit, like, on a fundamental level, I was trying to watch it through that prism. You tweet that, Jamel. I'm looking at all the replies. You have people going, like, uh, absolutely not. The movie is reprehensible. It's the it's the Marvin Berry scene for two and a half hours. How right, dare right, you say right. that some scenes are satirically edgy? Like, your tweet was specifically saying... Some of these scenes have a lot of edge and people were saying, how dare you excuse the entire movie, which you weren't even beginning to say. And then there were people on the other hand who were saying, excuse me, the entire thing has satirical edge. How dare you not give the movie that much credit? 
And then there were people saying, no one should be taking the movie this seriously. It's just a fun lark. And then there were people saying, like, it's a technical achievement above all else. We shouldn't be engaging with the meat of it whatsoever. It was just wild. And I start watching it, and I'm like, okay, I'm really going to try to see this movie through all possible prisms, especially now watching these Zemeckis movies in order, seeing how much uh, there is a satirical strain through all of his films up until this point, even if it doesn't always land. Uh, and then I start watching it, and it's like from the moment the fucking score starts, you're like, well, this automatically is why people take this movie at face value as the inspirational story of, you know, you'll never see the world the same way again after you've seen it through the eyes of Forrest Gump. Like everything about the score is like soaring, magical, like what you're about to be touched with the greatness, the beauty of Forrest Gump's way of life. And, and the impact, he is the golden thread that has unified the last four decades of American culture. Right. I, I, I agree with you that there's... Wild. That it's presented very sincerely at times. And yet also it begins with Sally Field fucking the principal. And when Forrest Gump is introducing himself, it flashes back to Tom Hanks putting a clan, clan hood on. <laughs> like that's <laughs> in the first 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> Like, yes, it begins with a beautiful feather floating to this, like, lovely score by Alan Silvestri, but also Tom Hanks puts a clan hood on in this movie. Yeah. Like, that's what, like, either people just forget or just kind of, like, or, you know, not some, but some, some people just kind of, I guess, yeah. skip on by. Like, this movie was presented as, like, you know, ah, the Republican Revolution crystallized in a film just as it arrived, right? You know right, what I mean? Right. Like 1994. Yes, that's right. America's starting to like think about its values and like what's so great about it, like just at the right time. And then I watch the movie and I'm like, isn't this movie about how the only way you can think America's great is if you're an idiot? Like, <laughs> it's such a wild, it's such Wait. a wild text. I really enjoyed watching it this time in ways that I hadn't before. I think because Griffin, like you're saying, I'm sort of thinking about it. I'm thinking about the Robert Zemeckis who made back to the future and welcome to Marwin. Like, but anyway, it is a wild text. It, I feel like it's, it's, I'm not sure if confuse is the right word for it, but there Mm. are so many different tones going throughout this movie. It is at different points trying to do very different things that, I think it's genuinely hard to say Forrest Gump is a reactionary movie, although I think there is a very clear and obvious reactionary reading of the movie, right? I think you can make that argument very easily. It's hard to say that this is a purely satirical movie because, you know, we, as we were just discussing, there are moments that are genuinely heartfelt and genuinely pull up are, you know, uh, very emotional, very much not the kinds of things you would find in a satire. And oftentimes the two things are sort of, they're like right next to each other within the film. Yeah. And so the Vietnam sequence, I don't know how we're get, how this is going to be structured. So I'm just going to like, um, well, we, we have to sit on a bench and, and talk yeah. to uh, a, right. a, a random person. That's how we're going to structure it. <laughs> is it okay if I run into the podcast? Do you guys mind? Yeah, you of course. Like, yeah, no, just can you run, run s- swim into the podcast? <laughs> I mean, however, however you want to go about it. Sorry. I let my boat drift into a dock. Jamel, Treat Ben as our, our bench partner for the sake of this episode. You're regaling Ben with the tale of your thoughts. Yes. The Vietnam sequence, when the all along the Watchtower music cue hits, 
And over while Forrest is narrating why he enjoys being in Vietnam so much, that just like feels so satirical to me. This this complete moron loves war because he's an idiot and can follow directions. And with sort of like the most stereotypical Vietnam War cue you could imagine, just feels like Zemeckis screaming, you know, this is, look how... How, look, look what idiots we are. Right. But then this is, but then 10 minutes later, not even 10 minutes later, you have the genuinely touching scene where Gump rescues his comrades who have fallen um, in this ambush. And that's like a, that's a, that's a, that's a harrowing piece of filmmaking. And because the two are so close together and because the harrowing, emotional, uh, uh, traditional stuff hit so well that's the stuff that sticks in your head mm-hmm. and the stuff that doesn't necessarily stick in your head is the tom hanks in a, in a klansman uniform is a sally field <laughs> <laughs> it's just so wild is the sally field uh sleeping with his uh with his teacher um is the is is one of my actually favorite little scenes where uh, Bubba Gump's mother has like the white housekeeper cooking your dinner, right? Sort of yeah. the sort of mm-hmm. the tables of turn honky moment, right? Right. But but that's the weirdness of this movie is that everything that is subversive in it is the stuff that we all forget is in it, and, and everything that you could sort of like pull anyone off the street and go describe to me the six major scenes in Forrest Gump are the scenes that are very, very easy to track as a, a cry for conservatism in America. You know, um, mm-hmm. th- this is the other incredibly weird thing about the book. I mean, I, let me just take my little corner here for the book, and I'm not going to get into like the scene-by-scene comparison of everything in this movie. But I, I think the biggest fundamental difference with the book, Jamel, you were saying like the idea that this guy is such a force for good or something like that. The book, he is fundamentally not a great guy. Uh, he's, you know, very much like this weird, he's six foot six, he's 250 pounds, and he's pretty abrasive. There's nothing cute about him. He's viewed as threatening by a lot of people. There isn't the sort of miracle, I was born with, you know, uh, bad legs, uh, I learn how to run, I then become this all-American hero. He's very much a like this giant kid who uh, a coach pulls up to on the side of the road and is like, you look like you could tackle people. You should be a football player. And they bring him into the football team just as like a bruiser. He doesn't save Jenny from a household of abuse. There isn't that same sort of like deeply knitted relationship from the very beginning. Jenny is very much the, the little redheaded girl from Peanuts. She's just the prettiest girl he's ever seen. And he keeps on running into her again. She remains the unattainable object for him, but they they aren't as intrinsically tied. And that's the biggest, biggest fucking difference. And Eric Roth, I think, is the one who said this. Uh, I'm trying to find the quote here. But Zemeckis was like, I want him to be just a force for good. I want Forrest to just be a complete innocent. That it is, right. as you were saying, this very naive childlike perspective of all these big events in American history. Um, only thing he believes in is God, his mama, and Jenny, is, is what Zemeckis said to him. And so 
they took everything kind of uh, here. The writer Eric Roth departed substantially from the book. We flipped the two elements of the book, making the love story primary and the fantastic adventures secondary. Also, the book mm. was cynical and colder than the movie. In the movie, Gump is a completely decent character, always true to his word. He has no agenda and no opinion about anything except Jenny, his mother, and God. Now, the thing that Eric Roth said is the way he pulled that off was to put all the unsavory elements and the unsympathetic things that Forrest Gump did into Jenny. Jenny becomes the receptacle for everything kind of rough that Forrest goes through. So you end up with one character who's just like a simpleton going through history, somehow winning, succeeding, and making everything around him better, and one character who just feels like fucking cursed by the gods to suffer over and over and over again. And, and Forrest's accomplishments are much smaller in the book. He has adventures that are a lot weirder, like him becoming a professional wrestler or a stuntman in like a Raquel Welsh movie. Um, but he doesn't meet like seven presidents. Uh, he isn't a war hero in the same kind of way. Lieutenant Dan is a guy he just meets in the hospital in recovery, not someone he served under, not someone he saved. Bubba is his friend going back to college on the football team. But, you know, the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company is the end of the book. That is the absolute peak of what Forrest Gump accomplishes. And everything else is much, much smaller than that. You don't have the same kind of thing of like at five different points in this guy's life, he became a national talking point until people forgot. And then three years later, he does another thing and people treat him like a new guy. It's the, the book ends with. Uh, he starts the company. It becomes huge. He goes back and hires pretty much everyone he's met along the way in the book. Like every side character comes back and becomes an employee of the Bubba Gum Shrimp Company. He makes a ton of money. And then he decides, I don't like it. I don't like this fancy life. His mom's still alive. He sets his mom up with money for the rest of her life, sets Bubba's family up for the rest of his life. Uh, he can't find Dan. He doesn't know where Lieutenant Dan is. He wants to hire him. Um, doesn't know where he is, but every other side character has come back, is working for it, and he just sort of leaves it behind and is like, I don't like this fancy life. People are trying to talk him into running for senator. The biggest running thread in the entire book is him saying, I need to pee at big moments. He does it like eight times. Anytime he's in front of the media, he says, I need to pee, and that's the only thing he can think of. So he goes and makes his announcement speech as senator, and he says, I need to pee, and people love it, and they try to turn it into like a Chauncey Gardner-esque slogan as if it has this deeper meaning and he goes i don't like this this is ugly i know i'm too stupid to be senator he walks away from it all gives away all of his earthly positions his only friend is an orangutan who he went to space with because also in the book he's a, a fucking astronaut so his best friend is an orangutan <laughs> named sue who is a male and he goes with the orangutan and just starts living a hobo life because his only real love was the harmonica. The harmonica is kind of treated with the same sort of savant attitude as his ping pong. This book sounds lame. So he wants to just be a harmonica player. The book's kind of good, but it's insane. Come on, a hobo segment? That would have been great. <laughs> well, I mean, the running he's is, I guess, the, sort of the movie's version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a harmonica, harmonica player, player with, with Sue going around, living, you know, on the rails and whatever. Then he runs into Lieutenant Dan. They start a three-person band that when he's sitting on a bench, he's like, I should see what Jenny's up to these days. So he reaches out. He finds Jenny. 
And she's married happily with his kid, who's Forrest Jr. And he's like, is the kid dumb? And she's like, no, he's really smart. But I was just worried because, you know, your brain. So I thought it was better that I get a normal husband. So he's like, oh, I'm glad to see the kids happy. I always thought I'd end up with you, but you're right. I could never be with you. Where I belong is homeless with my harmonica and orangutan and Lieutenant Dan. And the book ends with them just fucking busking in New Orleans. <laughs> he never sees the kid again. He never sees Jenny again. Yeah. The book is just like, I was a man who was stupid. I know I'm a moron. I went through some weird experiences. I made a ton of money. I never got super famous, but I had these weird little moments where I like crossed over with culture at large, but I didn't invent the fucking smiley face. I didn't become a folk hero. You didn't stop Watergate. Right. Like there isn't that same sort of, I mean, you did this. I, I'm going to make you talk about your tweets from earlier today, Jamal, but he, they don't do that thing. The Marvin Berry thing of like, He's always the person who somehow either made history happen or almost stopped history from happening. He's not the guy who fucking inspired Elvis Presley. Like, all that shit is Zemeckis, Eric Roth stuff. It's just sort of a story about a man who's got some rough edges. One of the earliest incidents, like, big uh, incidents in the book is he finally builds up the courage to ask Jenny on a date. He takes her to go see a movie when they're in high school. And she, it's a horror film, I think, and she faints. And he goes to pick her up off the ground because she fainted. And he's so strong that he accidentally rips her dress off. And she starts screaming. And then the cops come in because they think he's sexually assaulting Jenny. And he goes to jail. Yeah, well, uh, the book sounds... Bizarre. Yeah, it's just a different thing. Fundamentally different. Because it's clear, it's clear that they just saw the germ of an idea in this, basically. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just the idea of it and making into far more of like, it's just the folksy tale about this guy who doesn't even realize the impact he had on everyone around. Right. And also in the book, isn't he kind of like an idiot savant? Like he can kind of like do math. Yeah. Right. Like, or whatever. Right. He has, he has like a a brain for that. He's really good at math, but like nothing else. Um, I mean, he ends up like fucking up the big game in football. He ends up getting kicked out of school. Like he fails at most things he tries to do. He just gets to try a lot of things. Right. Math is the one thing he's like got a natural kind of predilection for. Um, but, but the movie translates that into all the weird things of like, oh, he's able to assemble the gun faster than anyone else. Like, he's constantly breaking all these records? Well, because he's a machine. He's a single-minded, simple-minded man who, who right. can just, if you give him directions, he can do them. He has no, like, ennui. Right. Like, he is not burdened by any sort of, like, inner conflict. So, right. So, he's a perfect machine of sports. Right. A perfect machine of war. Right. You know, like, like <laughs> right. and, like, is, all of is, that. He is the dream of generals since time began. Right. Exactly. I mean, the, the, I mean, honestly, possibly the funniest scene in the movie is the drill sergeant being <laughs> like, you're a genius. <laughs> like, like the, the opposite of the opposite of full metal jacket, essentially. But... The Marvin Berry hit is a, is a fair one in a way, right? Like it, yeah. it gets a little goofy where it's like, okay, Elvis, okay. But then there is that weird sort of salty, sweet thing where like he meets these presidents. and But then also Zemeckis is like constantly prodding the audience being like, remember that American history post-war was just our fucking presidents getting shot at like for 40 yeah. years and often murdered. Like, isn't that weird? You know what I mean? Like... 
like in this way where I feel like people think about the Kennedy assassination, they think about, you know, Reagan Uh being shot, like, but they, you know, like when you see it as this chain, we're like, huh, it's funny that that that's just all woven in. Like, and that's like so much of what he's trying to do. Right. Like it's sort of like when you see this as this big woven thing, like it's, it seems ludicrous. Like, like why, why can't Forrest Gump just wander through it? Right. And it, it, it seems it's, it's, um, it's ludicrous. And someone, the movie seems to be saying that only someone like Forrest Gump could experience all of that, uh, and come out of it, you know, not irreparably scarred, right. Sort of sure. not, not completely neurotic. Um, and you, Jen, Jenny seems to be the counterpoint, right. Sort of Jenny right, Nor- right. and Lieutenant Dan too. These are normal human beings who experience the things Forrest does and react as normal human beings do to be depressed or to be sad or to make bad decisions right. or right, 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 right. But also they, they push back against these things and are right. sort of punished for them in a way that he is not. You guys know what Eric Roth's big follow-up to this movie was Eric Roth, the screenwriter of this movie who wins an uh, Oscar mm-hmm. and is still a big Hollywood screenwriter. But do you know what his next movie was? I do not know. No. The Postman, which is another movie that is that weird mix where you're like, is this thing patriotic or is it like unbelievably myopic about like, you know, is it really depressed about America? It's such a like that. That movie obviously is the super flop to this movie's super hit, right? Like both are big Mm. swings. One totally connects, one completely baffles people. But like kind of the same sort of tone, right? Like, you know, waving American flag, but also apocalypse. I mean, I think I think there's this other element of it too. Not to relate everything back to back to the future, but watching these two movies closely. Oh, you gotta relate this movie to that. Yeah. You gotta relate this to Back to the Future, you gotta relate it to Marwin, right? If if there's sort of a ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. Yeah, Yeah. Not to relate it to Christmas Carol. I feel like these three movies are on some sort of spectrum. And I think both this and and Back to the Future are very interested in the way that history is sort of rewritten with distance, that we sort of commodify it into the pop culture version of what we live through and everything has to be seen as a triumph, that, that there's nostalgia for even our worst moments, you know, that everything is kind of cleaned up. And the way that Back to the Future is like, you throw the guy into the middle of it and he's realizing that everything his parents told him was not really true. That living in this time day to day is very different than how it's been relayed to him. And this movie is like Forrest Gump in real time is editing, uh, you know, what he's living through into the Hallmark card version of itself, which is where the movie gets into this weird Oros Oros thing of, oh, it became such a big hit with like boomers as this nostalgia trip of like them reliving all the things that they were a little too young to live through themselves but watch with a child's comprehension soundtracked by the biggest hits of several different decades and perceiving things the way they remember them as a child. Right. And the movie is sort of like having us taken eating it too, by doing the joke of, Oh, what Forrest is saying is different than what you're seeing. You an adult holding all the cards know what actually happened. 
And it's funny how he misinterpreted it. Mm. But it's also very easy to just coast on the level of what Forrest is telling you if you don't really want to engage with it and just go like, man, CCR. Yeah. Remember Vietnam? <laughs> he won. He got the he got the trophy. And, and, this, and this is where I mean, this is where I think the totally valid argument that the movie is reactionary comes in, because watching it on that level, you know, it's it's not just presenting. Oh, isn't it? You know, isn't it? Wasn't JFK so handsome? You know, wasn't Vietnam so hard? Weren't the Black Panthers so militant? Weren't the you know weren't the anti-war mm-hmm. demonstrators so ridiculous? Right, sort of. Yes. It 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 begins to when it hits that register for those moments, it does put forth this. Oh, all that was very silly. Um, the the Vietnam protest scene, I think, is the 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 scene where you can really crystallize what is doesn't work about this movie, which is that he you know, he, you don't hear him say anything about Vietnam. Like, you know, right. th- that's the joke of that scene. And in 2020 or even in 1995, you know, if you were, you could look at Vietnam, you could look at the civil rights movement and be like, no, they were right. The protesters were right. They're, they're not to be skewered because they actually, they got it all correct. Mm-hmm. And so it's weird to skewer them. The only way you can skewer them is from this kind of, Rush Limbaugh listening, you know, Newt Gingrich voting perspective. And that's what makes it, I think, like when people when 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 people say this is a, you know, a reactionary, not even conservative, but a reactionary move, movie, I can kind of see where they're going on that. It's certainly easy to take that away from it. I don't, I mean, Griffin, what do you want to say? I, I, I have another Eric Roth thought. I keep thinking about Eric Roth's kind of an interesting career. Well, I want to, I want to, I guess, back up a little bit, do a little bit of our standard sort of, career context just place this movie mm. in its time and talk about the versions that almost got made and then let's maybe sit down on the on the bench and and go through these things in order um oh, jamel boy. your run of tweets that you did earlier today about all the different events that forrest gump was responsible for <laughs> i i would i would love to request a reading of those tweets sure so uh, again like i said earlier we um we were watching the second half of this movie and we had started pretty much just like 10 minutes after we started the second half is when uh, Forrest Gump meets President Nixon, which is actually kind of the, the scene uh, before that's pretty funny where he's like, you know, I met the president again and I went to the White House again. It's, it's funny. Um, <laughs> it funny. I enjoyed that. Uh, I think that's actually the proper way we should we should think of presidents. It's just sort of like, you know, guys who have this job and like whatever. Um, but uh, it's the scene where he meets Nixon and Nixon asks him where he's staying, and he's staying at some hotel. Nixon's like, oh, I'll put you up in a nicer place. And then it cuts to him seeing the Watergate break-in happen and then calling you know, the police and saying, hey, you may want to check that out. The implication being that Nixon – Forrest Gump is the reason Nixon got impeached. And so what I said on Twitter uh, – Yes. Uh, go, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Jamel, it's it's really subtle. It's hard to <laughs> understand what's happening. In the He's like, scene I'm here in the water gate. Talking. <laughs> right. It's it's Nixon saying, "What hotel are you staying at?" No, I know a much better hotel for you to stay at. Then it cuts to him in the hotel, looking out the window, seeing men with flashlights, looking for th- something, rummaging through files, calling up the cops, and then, in case you don't get it. The camera pans over to the desk where you see the stationery that says the Watergate. <laughs> I just love that he has no Wait, faith in the audience whoa, to track whoa. what's happening. 
What's that scene about, though? I don't understand. I thought it was just about Nixon knowing from hotels. No? Nixon noted right. hotelier. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. He was he just really smart about hotels. Okay, okay, good. He was like the original Yelper. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, ju- I just wrote on Twitter, you know, forgot that the film makes Gump responsible for stopping the Watergate break-in, and then that was followed by a tweet, uh, looking forward to the remake of Gump in 20 years, where it turns out Gump did 9-11. Uh, Gump <laughs> makes his way on The Apprentice and tells Donald Trump he should try being president mm-hmm. sometime. You, you'd be a great president. <laughs> Gump is working as a janitor at Harvard in 2003, bumps into Mark Zuckerberg, says it'd be nice if I had a way to remember all these people I meet and faces I see. <laughs> that, that, that was good. God, Gump what else drinks could too much up soda to? and he burps and it sounds like Google and that just, you know, starts off that whole idea. God, it would just that's the that's the depressing thing. At a certain point, he would just invent various websites. <laughs> it would just get really right, right. <laughs> he would be like, oh, you know, uh, you know, I wish I could sure buy, you know, uh, books on the Internet. I don't know. Like it would just be that over and over again. We'd be like, oh, fuck. Every single advancement in the last 20 years has just been a website. He unplugs something and it causes Y2K. Like we could just of do course. this all day. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. God. Oh, God. Uh Okay, so the the book comes out in 1986. It is well-liked, but it's not a massive sales hit, nor like a completely beloved thing. But I think it it has its fans, it has its champions, including right here on the cover, Larry King himself saying, do yourself a favor and read Forrest Gump. It may be the funniest novel I have ever read. That feels like, like Larry King, no offense to Larry King. Who yeah. is still with us, I believe, right? He's Look at how weird us. this cover is, though. Yeah, that's a weird cover. I've seen that one with the with the sideways face. Because the, the other one is that kind of like kind of painted one where he looks like he looks like a big dude. Have you seen this one? It's on the Wikipedia page. Yeah, I mean, he's supposed to be an absolute fucking unit, right? He's like a he's a he's a football player. Winston Groom said he wanted it to be John Goodman, right? Right, right. And it's because that's why he's a kick returner in the movie. Like Tom Hanks is more thin frame. But um, like you just have to like give Larry King like a bag of onions, right? To get a quote on your book or whatever, right? Like how hard is it? The single greatest (laughs) book I've ever read. A masterpiece. Oh, the Western canon trembles as Forrest Gump enters. (laughs) Or whatever. You know, he's just like reading that over the phone. Anyway, the book comes out in 86, as you say. Yeah. Um, Winston Groom, who is sort of like, he's written other books, but isn't he, he's also like, he does a lot of nonfiction, right? Did a lot of American historical. I, I think a fair amount, but, but Gump did sort of. A, a lot. Yes. Gump did like, I, I think I was looking through reviews and people recognized at the time, like, oh, this is like a pretty original creation. You read reviews and they're like, Gump might mm, form mm. its own little cult. You could see a lot of these sayings ending up on T-shirts. Like Gump as a character kind of speaks in constant like Yogi Berra-isms, you know? Right, right, right. right. Um, and so he, I think even before the movie came out, published another book that's like called Gumpisms or something like that. Gumpisms, the wit and wisdom of Forrest Gump. Like he did sort of just like a Forrest Gump advice book. Uh, right, okay, so right, so it's like, and it's optioned, right, by Paramount or whatever, right? Yes, yes. And and I believe the original choice is someone who is like always 
an original choice to direct a movie and never does it. This guy is, I feel like, constantly mentioned in the 80s and 90s. Terry Gilliam. Like, I feel like after Brazil, he was just attached to everything. That's the thing I want to talk about for a little bit here. It's just Terry Gilliam has this movie coming off of, like, Monty Python and everything, right? He has Brazil, which is notorious for, like, the studio doesn't want to release it. The critics champion it. They finally will it into being released. It's still a commercial failure. It doesn't get major Oscar noms, but it has this very fervent cult following. Right. Yeah. It was seen as sort of an underdog triumph in its weird, right. just because it got released. Right. But but he does have a run of successful mainstream movies, which I feel like from, from Quixote on, the first time he tries to make Quixote, he's cursed. He never recovers. He becomes like just this complete like, I mean, it's the onion headline of, Terry Gilliam barbecue six months, $400 million over budget about him trying to like build the barbecue out of like titanium or whatever. I mean, right. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, time bandits, which is pre Brazil. That was a hit. And Munchausen, which is his blank check post Brazil is a flop, but then Fisher King and 12 monkeys are both well-liked box office hits that get Oscar nominations. He's working with huge movie stars. He's adapting big works like, you know, right, he's adapting plays. other people's scripts and yeah. he's keeping them his own, but still, you know, like the, I like those movies. I like that run. And I guess Fear and Loathing was not a hit exactly, but it was one of those movies that instantly had a long life on VHS sure. and all that. But he's definitely one of those guys for how much he's seen as just like poison right now and like a pox upon uh studio filmmaking they never let him near anything again that whole run of like him being the first choice for roger rabbit uh being the first choice for this uh uh, jk rowling her uh, infinite wisdom famously really wanted him to do harry potter and like said to warner brothers he's my choice and gilliam's the one who turned it down and was like i don't know what i would do with that but anytime there was something that seemed technically complicated the material was tricky or both he was viewed as a somewhat, not safe pick, but it was like the Doug Lyman thing of like, look, sometimes it's going to blow up in your face and he's going to make a fucking train wreck. But every once in a while, this madman gets it right. Um, right. So he turns it down. He's just like, I don't know. Uh, Watchmen was another one that everyone thought he was the one guy to adapt for so long. He really, and he that one was one where he actually really took a crack at it, but and yeah. then it didn't work out. Couldn't figure out. But uh, yeah, so there's him. And then I believe the second person attached was Barry Sonnenfeld, right? Sonnenfeld was 100% attached and then dropped out right. to do Adam's Family Values when that sort of got fast-tracked. Um, so then Zemeckis comes on. It's wild that Zemeckis is like third choice, especially considering what a run of hits he had. Because he's essentially, I mean, he's done three Back to the Futures, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Romancing the Stone, and Death Becomes Her all in a row. Obviously not in that order. He hasn't whiffed since uh, used cars. Um, but I do think as much as he was a, a sort of A-list Hollywood director, he was in a little bit of that Spielberg thing where Spielberg was so desperate to make like an adult movie and be respected by the Oscars and not just seen as this populist popcorn guy. And Spielberg, it took him a lot longer to get from Jaws to Schindler's List. Zemeckis did sort of the fast track version of it. Um, but I think the version that Gilliam or Sonnenfeld would have made would have not been a major Oscar play. Yeah, And no. most of the actors you hear 
that were wanted for this movie were comedy actors. Like it was like Bill Murray and Chevy Chase. Mm. Sean Penn was one of the serious actors who they wanted, which that movie sounds like a fucking disaster. You just imagine him combining his I Am Sam performance with his All the King's Men performance. Right. Yes. <laughs> I mean, because because a, a, a Gilliam directed Forrest Gump feels like it'd be much closer to the spirit of the novel. Right. Mm-hmm. More more directly. Yeah. Uh, acidic and satirical. I, and and sure. Bill Murray playing Gump feels like it would be closer to like Carl Speckler from Caddyshack. Like that's how Gump reads as like that somewhat menacing idiot. But I I would argue. I mean, when you watch this movie, mm-hmm. I, you I at least I was doing the thought experiment of like, what if this movie, this exact movie, had made thirty million dollars at the box office and was considered like a weird entry from Zemeckis, right? Very easy to imagine. Right? It's the exact same movie, but it just like, it was like, yeah, this didn't connect. It was a little too dark and strange at times and a little too goofy, you know, like, so, and then I feel like you would just sort of be like, huh, well, this movie is very ambitious and interesting, much like a lot of Zemeckis's later flops, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, not only does that situation sound plausible if this movie had come out in 1990 i think that's what what would have happened i mean it's worth considering and if it if it came out in 2020 and i've made this joke everyone would go to jail right (laughs) Um, just straight to jail it is worth considering that in 1995 i mean this is you know it's not just you know boomer nostalgia 1995 is the entire U.S. federal government is run by people who grew up in the 60s and 70s, right? Like, Bill, yes. the whole thing about Bill Clinton, the whole sure. thing that made him so interesting and exciting, he is the first boomer president. That this is, yeah. the 90s were kind of the, the the ascent of the boomers into positions of power. And so this movie, I mean, I think the reason the, mo- the movie got read the way it did, the reason it was received the way it did, is that it hits at exactly the right point mm-hmm. in Yes, you know American history to have the kind of cultural impact it did, and to be read the way that it was. Because if you if you just put it, make it a movie that comes out in two thousand, even two thousand five. Oh. Yeah. I mean, certainly post nine eleven, the movie hits. You know, people would might read it as totally a heart a, a satire straight up, but right. Um, five years earlier. You can't force him, I think, ends up as a weird curiosity. You're right. I mean, it's literally, this is the one moment. It it comes out July 1994. Mm -hmm. It wins the Oscar early 2005. It runs at the box office for months and months and months. Early 95. 95, I'm sorry. But it it has like nine months there where it is the key movie in America. Yeah. You know, on people's minds. Absolutely. From, From sort of July to March or April of the following. And then from then on, it's just pop culture history. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. like I say, it's on cable all the time. Everyone knows the lines. Bubba Grump's Shimp Company is a real restaurant. Like, you know, it's just sort of like everyone's like, yeah, Forrest Gump, the movie, the famous movie that we've all seen. I mean, Jamel, you talking about how weird it is that like you would think to play it for kids at a summer camp. It's only weird when you're rewatching the movie, because I feel like the movie now I feel like the backlash against the movie has started to overtake the goodwill in some kind of way. I feel like in 95, it was very much the minority opinion of like, you know, oh, you're so cynical. You hate Gump. 
And now people like question it a lot more. Um, but I feel like not only was the movie that quickly canonized, but it was canonized in a way that's closer to something like Wizard of Oz yeah. than something mm-hmm. like Casablanca. Mm-hmm. It right. was like every kid understands what this is. It is constantly parody. Every single element of it is iconic. You can dress like Forrest Gump. You can have someone sit on a bench. You can have there be a feather. You can use the music, it, but the supporting cast, the lines, the shrimp, like just fucking everything about this movie was just like in the cloth of the culture for years and still is. That's the other weird thing about it is I feel like so often when we cover movies that are this iconic, when I actually put them on, there's that thing of like, oh, this is a movie. Like I have to unpack the years of Simpsons parodies and like bad improv references. And <laughs> right, right. And just engage with Silence of the Lambs as Silence of the Lambs and not the later sequels and all the other shit surrounding it. And then you watch Forrest Gump and for as weird as it is, you're like, this is Forrest Gump. But the parodies aren't really subverting what it is. Right. The, the reputation isn't really subverting what it is. It's a weird thing to wrap your head around, but it is very much like it, it in so many, it is both weirder than what people remember it being and also exactly what people minimize it to, if that makes sense. It does. I, I'm just, and I'm thinking more just about the, the, politics of it, not in terms of the reading of the movie, but just in terms of its reception and how it's how it's evaluated. And I think you could make a pretty good case that it's declining reputation amongst movie watchers, or at least, you know, amongst people like us, directly reflects the extent to which we are living at the tail end of the political leadership of the 60s generation and it's a total it's a total mess right you it's it's hard to watch that movie now given everything we've lived through and not conclude that people like someone like Forrest Gump cast a ballot for Donald Trump absolutely <laughs> sure. Not that Forrest Gump has ever voted. Right, no, no, of yes, course not. Absolutely. No, 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 no. Um like that seems like just a little too aggressive for him but um I agree with everything everyone just said, but I also hearkening back to the talk of the, you know, Gilliam and stuff. I do think the only reason this movie works is because Zemeckis read this script, read this book, whatever, and was like, no, it's gotta be totally sincere. Like, you know, we can be ironic or whatever, but like the tone and the performance needs to be absolutely sincere or else this, this just will baffle people. Also, strip everything else away. Forrest Gump as a character is nothing less than the physical embodiment of sincerity. Right. He needs, and he needs to be, and the, I, I, you know, I feel it in the first moments in the movie, not the bench so much, but like when you see him getting on the bus and saying like, I'm not supposed to talk to straight, you know, I'm Forrest, I'm Forrest, Forrest Gump, that, that whole exchange, you love him. Like you feel yeah. great affection for him instantly. You want to protect him, right? Like, you know, he's, it's that sort of, and like that, that then you're on board, you're on board with all the bullshit that's about to happen, you know, like, because you're like, well, this is a, uh, come on, like, you know, leave the kid alone. You know, like you just immediately have that kind of defensive reaction and it works. Is Tom Hanks, <laughs> The, I, to me, the biggest and most baffling let's question is, is yeah, he good yeah. in this movie or not? Because I think you have to argue that, yes, he is. Like, 
that it's a crucial performance. Like the, the movie only works because of it. But at the same time, you watch it, and you're like, Jesus Christ, man, what is he doing? Like, But looking vacant <laughs> isn't acting, I would argue. I don't know. <laughs> I have very complicated thoughts on this issue. Have you guys seen that video of him doing the accent over and over again while they're getting ready? Have you seen that? There's, it was, yeah. I feel like it was going viral recently. It, it was circulating like a week or two ago. It's him yeah. doing takes of just his close-up on the bench for some part. Right. And then he keeps on going like, let me reset, let me reset. And it's, right. it's fascinating because of how technical it is, that there's no sort of like methody self-seriousness. He's just sort of going like, Bob, where do I look? Eye line here, eye line there. Okay, laugh is like, a, no, that was off. Let me try it again. Let me try it again. And he's just sort laugh of like, is like... Laugh is right. like, right, like that. Yes, yes. Uh, Hanks did this interview recently about the fact that they filmed the first three days. Zemeckis came up to him and said, Tom, I just want you to know I'm not going to use any footage we've shot so far. I don't think you have it yet. You don't have the character. It's fine. I believe you're going to get it. You're going to get your handle on it. But I just want you to know, don't feel any pressure. Essentially, you're at a blank slate because none of that's being used. Right. And then like a week or two later, he went to Hanks and was like, uh, they're making us cut these scenes. They don't want the running thing at the end at all because it's too many locations, outdoors and extras and whatever. And there was like one or two other things they didn't want to put in the movie because of budget and complication. And he said, here's what I'm asking of you. I will make you an equal creative collaborator on this movie. I'll bring you into edits. I'll take your notes. I'll shape the entire film to your specifications. We'll be 50-50 on this. I'll give you a lot of say, but you need to sacrifice like 25% of your salary to put back into the budget of this movie. I'm doing the same. And in exchange, we'll get points. And they did it. And Zemeckis and Hanks each made like $60 million. It's, it's 80. It's some insane amount of money. Yeah. It's just because they got net points, not gross. Right. Points. But right. Yeah. Um, but wait. Okay. But back to the question. Jamal, what do you think this performance is? this good? Is this good? <laughs> I don't know. There are... There are point. There are moments where Hanks is genuinely great. We already mentioned one when he when he asked about his son. That that is that is amazingly well performed. Incredible. Like it, I, that that I, that does is a testament to what Hanks is bringing to this role. I think you know. I think a Sean Penn would have fucked a scene like that up completely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, the last twenty minutes are all terrific, and Hanks is doing a great job. I, but is it good? I I, I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I'll say this. I don't find it off-putting, right? Like, unlike an I Am Sam, unlike a Sling Blade, unlike a um, a radio, a movie that I detest. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's not an off-putting performance, and I think mm-hmm. it's. I think. I think it's because Gump isn't uh, disabled. Gump is just slow. Right. They don't really delve into anything specific he's got a low iq right that's about as much as they say right he's magical in that kind of way where it's like what he is and isn't good at what he does and does not understand is very selective based on what benefits the movie right he he's childlike but also america is childlike often (laughs) so he fits this is my whole thing it's like 
Do I like this performance? No. I also don't really like this movie. Uh, right. That, I agree with you. I just also kind of admit that it works, I guess. And this is the this is the fucked up thing. Everything that's effective about this movie is completely tied to how effective Hanks is in the role, even though I don't necessarily think it's a good performance. But in whatever ways the movie works, it does work because of what he's doing. And it gets into that sort of canniness that Hanks is able to apply sometimes in terms of understanding audiences, understanding how he plays, how audiences react to him, what he's able to convey well and what is outside of his range of what people will accept from him in ways where I'm like, this accent sounds like how no person has ever, ever spoken. But if he were doing a more realistic accent, I think it would work against what Zemeckis is trying to do. Right, the weird magic, like you're saying. If he were more realistically playing some sort of neurological developmental disability, it would play against the movie. He's in this weird, like, Clarabelle the Angel space as just this odd, like, sort of, like, one-off creature who doesn't sound like anyone else, who doesn't think like anyone else, who doesn't behave like anyone else. The reason why he's a smart casting choice is because of Big. It's what you're saying, David, from like the moment he arrives on the park bench, you're like, I mean, I'm going to feel like an asshole if I make fun of this guy. There's something so childlike about him without him being, you know, a, a, a sort of specifically developmentally disabled, regressed, childlike man, if that makes sense. But I think it's crucial to think of the movies Jamel mentioned radio is a great example. Yeah. I am Sam is obviously a great example and how spectacularly bad they are, especially the performances. Yeah. And to, to maybe like as broad a performance as Hanks is giving, like to, I guess, acknowledge like, no, there is a high wire that he's on that other talented actors have, you know, tried to get, I mean, those movies are worse movies also, but like still like they yeah. tried to navigate that and completely, you know, fucked it up. Like, I mean, rate radio. I, I radio is one of those movies that I f- don't remember exists because it doesn't exist. But then the second you mention it, it like floods into my memory. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. I mean, look Griffin. Yeah. You, as you know, Tom Hanks won best actor at the Academy Awards for this the film. Second, here in a row like that's the thing right. you have to wrap your head around is that that's never why happened. i want to talk about it this movie was so undeniable they were like look our hands are tied we're loath to yes. give it to the same guy we gave it to last year but how do we not give him the oscar it must happen <laughs> because if we're gonna you know give this movie best picture over pulp fiction quiz sure. show uh you know four weddings and funeral shawshank yeah. redemption that hanks must win like because yeah. It, and here's who he beats. All four performances, I would say, are arguably better winners. Okay, so Travolta... And, and, and I don't even... So Travolta and Pulp Fiction, where yeah. you have the combo of an excellent performance, a star-reviving performance, what the, which yeah. the Oscars love, an against-type performance. You know, like, you've got everything there. Yes, it's, a, it's an anti-heroic character, right? Like, you know, that's turning sure. some voters off maybe, but right. But like, it just seems like such an obvious win. I don't love that performance. And also I don't think he's the lead of the movie, but I have uh, controversial opinions on Paul Fiction. Yeah. Jesus. I mean, David is making a face right now that I haven't seen since 
we went to see the Lion King remake in theaters. I, 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 will, I will, Griffin. I will, I will give you. I will give you a slight bump, which is just to say that when I I saw Pulp Fiction, you know, in high school, then later learned that that performance for Travolta was so transformative for his career, uh-huh. and then went back to watch Pulp Fiction and couldn't figure it out. Thank you. I don't think it's a bad performance, but I think I thank you, Jamal. And guess what? You just got booked on our eventual Pulp Fiction episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like, I, for, all right, a bunch of things. I think Travolta, Willis, and Jackson are all the leads of this movie. It's like they're they're I co-leads. Agree. They they have equal screen time. He Travolta is absolutely a lead of the movie. Is the best performance of that movie. Who is Bruce Willis? He's great in it. I mean, they're, yeah. whatever. I mean, Pulp Fiction is good. John Travolta is good in it. Neither of those are controversial opinions, but those are my opinions. But beyond that, I'm just talking about Oscar. I'm not talking about mm-hmm. David's picks sure. or Griffin's picks. I'm talking Oscar about narrative. Oscar. Great exactly. Oscar narrative. Yeah. Okay. Here, Paul Newman for Nobody's Fool. Like, that's yeah. the one you were like, okay, he's not going to win. Like, even though Screen Legend, it's actually a really good performance, but whatever. Yeah, fine. Nigel Hawthorne for The Madness of King George, which is an astonishing performance, but mm-hmm. sort of ladled with the kind of like oh well he's the old brit in the costume drama like the nom is his reward actually an incredible performance but and then morgan freeman in the shawshank redemption which is in my opinion the whiff like and i don't even love the shawshank redemption but like that's such an obvious win like so you know for the career for the moment like kind of his definitive role you know what i mean like but they couldn't do it i always forget that Robbins didn't get nominated, that they didn't nominate both of them. No. Yeah. Yeah, they, they didn't. Uh, and I'm sure they, no, they had well. to run both as lead. Right. No. And to the degree that also, I feel like when Freeman finally wins the Oscar for million dollar baby, everyone says like, well, this is the Shawshank award. He's very good in that movie, but he's kind of given you Morgan Freeman in that movie. Like, it's, right. You know. But I, I, you know, as opposed to driving Miss Daisy, no one was saying, Oh, finally they're giving him his makeup award for driving Miss Daisy. By the point right. million dollar baby comes out, and Shawshank Redemption is the highest rated film on IMDb. Everyone's like, this is right, his belated right. Shawshank award. Um, yes, the Hanks win is bizarre in that kind of way, especially because he's 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 doing things as an actor to benefit the movie that don't stand that well on their own if you're only paying attention to the performance. But it makes sense, that story about Zemeckis being like, we have to be in this together. We're making right, these decisions right. together. We're sink or swim. Right, Because he's so unified with what Zemeckis is doing. All the elements are so unified. I mean, it's that Zemeckis thing of just like, he's so slick. It's so tight, you know? It's so sort of well-crafted that you find yourself getting like lulled into it. And then you go like, is this insipid? Is this just total bullshit? Do I find this despicable? Is this performance offensive? And you kind of can't even answer any of those questions because then you get lulled into the next thing or caught up on a genuine moment or perplexed by something so strange happening but as you say it is also so slick like in that way that it is annoying right i genuinely yeah i I like i watch it and i'm like that's very skilled like it is very impressive what tom hanks is able to pull off here and what he's pulling off is big it's the same magic trick of just making a character feel that much like a supernatural child that you can go off into insane territory and accept it, right? That he's like your key to the suspension of disbelief that this movie asks of you. Um, but he can do better accents than this. He can play 
more realistic people than this. Um, and it's not his funniest performance and it's not his most emotionally resonant performance. And it's not his most physically demanding or transformative performance. Like he's done better work in every area. I think part of it's the combination of all those things and that he had just become like the president of Hollywood, as you've joked the year before he makes his Philadelphia speech. I mean, he wins for Philadelphia while they're filming this. Is that correct? Uh, that would make sense. Certainly it's the year before. Right. So yeah, yeah, certainly. I, I mean, think he probably. was just, yeah. Filming. So, no, no, no. Filming is done right before the Oscars. So, but whatever he okay. does, he finishes filming wins an Oscar for Philadelphia probably is then, you know, finishes filming Gump wins an Oscar for Philadelphia moves on to fucking Apollo 13 or whatever, you know, right. next family, friendly crowd pleasing blockbuster he's gonna make toy story he probably he's getting in the booth yeah. for toy story and then he's like oh oh there's another oscars i guess i'll show up and win again and right. then maybe i'll play sully the fucking hero <laughs> who landed flight 1549 on the hudson 155 souls 155 <sighs> souls there were so many souls the, the moment <sighs> jamel of of the is he like me where he can't get the word out and then the relief when jenny says <sighs> like no he's brilliant it makes me is, sob <laughs> it's, it's it's insane as you said it's like an incredible incredible piece of acting but it also there's a straight line from that to the moment i find most impressive in sully which is the moment where they tell him that there were 155 survivors there's that yeah. thing that I think he's truly better at than any other actor in history, which is asking a question he is afraid to hear the answer to, and then receiving that news and trying to maintain composure. And he's done it at many points over his career because there is that, like, Hank steady hand, America's dad trying to remain stoic and noble. But that moment where you just see for a second, he almost loses it. He's almost overcome with emotion and then he pulls himself back together. It's the thing he's fucking best at. I mean, in, in at the end of Captain Phillips, when he lets himself yeah. go, right. that's what makes it so powerful. Cause he's like, right. he's kind of doing the, the 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 exact opposite of what you expect him to do. I can't I'll say I cannot watch that end of Captain Phillips without like bursting into tears. So just so you can oh. see, watch. I mean, the end of Captain Phillips is it's all it's like you say, that's um you're just thunderstruck by it because it's the last thing you thought the movie would end with like, right. Yeah. 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 Oh, and in Inferno when he's like, did the Inferno get everybody? I don't know what happens in Inferno. (laughs) One thing I'm still thinking about because it's precisely because Forrest Gump is this movie with these two kind of discordant tones that can be read multiple, multiple different ways um, but that is the, the version that, that kind of gets traction is the kind of, uh, American innocence, you know, American triumph reading. And it's interesting to bring Hanks's career into that as well, because, you know, the end of the nineties has him or is it in the, yeah, 98 has him in saving private Ryan, which is very much a movie about America's sort of like inherent goodness. And there is this, to the extent that Tom Hanks does, is not just America's dad, but America's like friendly dad. Yeah. The, not, not just kind of a, a, a throwback to award, uh, was it Cleaver? See, I don't, I don't know. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. not just a throwback to that, but a throwback to that shorn of the distance and shorn of the of the um, the sternness, even mm-hmm. sort of like much more warm. Um, to the extent that Hanks does represent that, it is also it is also uh, intersecting with a moment in American culture where there is this this rekindling of this belief in our national innocence um, that you see you see you see throughout the yeah. culture in the nineties, right? Right. Um, yeah. For which for which Saving Private Ryan is like the capstone, like that's the thing that yeah. kind of sums it all up. And so it kind of makes sense just thinking of the cultural currents in America in the 90s that yeah. Gump, again, that Gump would land the way it did, that people would respond the way they did. And then they would also want to reward Hanks for it, too. All of it really lines up when you think of that movie uh, as, despite its source material, despite maybe its intentions, maybe not, as being a visual, you know, plugging into the psyche of the, you know, 30 to 50 year olds who run the country and want to believe that um, they and the country are, you know, they won the Cold War, right? The Cold War, Cold War just ended. Just ended. It's 95. 18 months ago, right? Like they won the Cold War. Uh, you know, uh, capitalism is is victorious uh, around the globe. We're going to bring peace and us. freedom everywhere. I mean, yeah. it's, it's really, Absol- it's triumphant. I mean, the- there's so many yeah. 90s movies. I mean, Griffin, we just watched Armageddon, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a, a sort of absolutely coked out like vision of American exceptionalism yeah. over everything else in which literally they try and refuel at a Russian space station and it explodes within minutes. Okay, yeah, now we got to watch the like movie again. It's like a fucking punchline. Um, but like the 90s are just, it, right, it's like, uh, I, I guess we're on top. And so it's either like, we're the best or like your American beauty style movies. It's like, oh God, I don't believe in anything. <laughs> like what happened? Like, you know, this sort of like. <laughs> and, th- and this rather than we're the best, this is sort of looking back at the tumult and saying, we made it through after all, didn't we? Yes, which is yeah. probably how a lot of audience members at the time and even now, but certainly at the time, you know, they just, that resonated with them so much of like, wow, like when you look at it that way, like what a crazy thing. And it's very much yeah. a we're in the clear now movie. Yeah, it is in that it, yeah, it, it finishes with a note of such tranquility and like, yeah. you know, I think things are going to be okay. It's which that's true. I mean, but at the same time, I watched this movie and I'm like, this movie fucking hates America. Like, I can't get, I cannot I, I decide. It's so, it's so slippery. And I, I cannot decide whether that is to the movie's credit or the ultimate indictment of this movie's evil. But it is like, I just, I can't, it's like a fucking water worm. And I'm in a pool and I got my arms and legs around it. And every right, scene, it's I'm like, like slipping I think, out. I think I get it. I don't even care if I like it or hate it. I just want to know. And then just keep slipping out. I mean, there's so many things to unpack here. But I feel like I saw both of you write about this or at least tweet about this over the summer. But watching the reaction to uh, Hamilton going up on Disney Plus was so fascinating because Hamilton is such a peak end of Obama era work of art. 
And to watch uh, right. it, it now, is the definitive yes. work of yes. Obama era. Yeah. Right. 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 Like what this is to, uh, you know, 1995, uh, uh, you know, uh, th- that's what uh, Hamilton is to like 2016, 2015, uh, 14. When did it open? 13? I 2015. I, it's 2015 yeah. because I distinctly remember um, the culture editor at Slate asking me if I wanted to go up to New York and check out this rap musical about Hamilton and me saying, come on, man, I got better <laughs> shit to do. You were like, ew, Jesus. <laughs> but it is, it is such a, like a 2015 thing where you're like, that's, that's the moment that show exists. Well, there's not, it's not only that, but it's that it like the first time Lin-Manuel Miranda like debuted in public, anything from Hamilton was when he did, um, you know, the, the title song at, a slam poetry event that Obama held at the White House. Right. And you're like, what? They they held slam poetry events in two, it that was were in sincere right, yeah. about American history at the White House? Like, what do you mean? I thought the White House was just like where people got COVID at each other <laughs> and like ate yeah. chicken nuggets all day. Like, ah, like it's such a it's such a ridiculous sounding thing like that Obama was like, hey, let's have some historical slam poetry, you know. But like people <sighs> who who had not seen Hamilton on stage and had seemingly not listened to the soundtrack and were just watching it on Disney Plus as if it were a new movie engaging with it in 2020, a lot of them were like fucking flummoxed by it because I think they couldn't place it within the context of time, how much things have shifted in the last four years is it is one of those pendulum swings between America making the kind of art of like, things feel steady now, let's look back and and sort of whimsically chuckle at all the shit we've gone through versus the work that comes out of a time like now that is the work of just like, we're fucking fighting this thing. It's the trial of the Chicago 7. Everything's at stake. (laughs) Like every movie's about everything. You know, like everything is like some, some means of like political revolt. Um, and, and this is, yeah, this is a movie made in that sort of period of time. The movie's such a fucking big hit and Groom writes the sequel book. And it was one of those things where like Groom was offered a percentage point of the movie, but then because the, the Hanks and Zemeckis had gotten first dollar gross and they had to pay them out so much, they did Hollywood accounting and pretend that the movie lost money so that they never had to pay Winston Groom out. And then he sued them. And the way they settled the suit was by paying a ton of money for the sequel book. And they, by all accounts, were going to make the sequel. I think it was not really going to be based off of what the book is, because um, the book's fucking bananas. But Right, but Eric Roth wrote a sequel treatment, at least. Yes. And, and, and Haley Joel Osment was now the fucking new hope of Hollywood. Yeah. They were like, make the movie that's Gump and Son, make it. And apparently the thing that killed the sequel was 9-11. That it was literally like he hands the draft into Paramount on like September 9th. And on September 13th, they get on the phone. They're like, we, we shouldn't go through with this, right? Like, it was just an immediate... This shit ain't cute anymore. <laughs> like, right. it's, throw it in the garbage. It was just one of those moments where it's like, this is done. That window's done. This is the one time it could happen. Now, you talk about, like, Hanks being America's 50s sitcom dad and everything. Mm. The other thing that Hanks is so known for really starting after this is being like the most hyper competent steady man you know this thing we always talk about like tom hanks movies 
about guys who are good at their job. And that's his run that starts right after this, where he has like, I think, 10 consecutive $100 million movies. If you discount that thing you do because he's not the lead, it's like every movie from Forrest Gump straight to Catch Me If You Can, maybe there's one after that, makes over $100 million. Uh, I can look it up. Yeah. It ends with The Terminal. It starts with Forrest Gump. Including the two Toy Stories. Um, but Saving Private Ryan, Apollo 13, Castaway, Catch Me If You Can, Road to Perdition. It starts, well, I guess Philadelphia, right. It, it really starts with a league of their own. It's just that Philadelphia makes a little uh, under 100. And that thing you do kind of break it up. But yes, you have, yeah. you know, Apollo 13, Toy Story, Saving Private Ryan, you've got Mail, Toy Story 2, yeah. Green Mile, Castaway, Road to Perdition, Catch Me If You Can. I mean, hey. Man had hits. I think it's interesting that like Forrest Gump is kind of the outlier in that all the other things are like Hanks just knows what he's doing, you know, even straight to Bridge of Spies and Captain Phillips and Sully, obviously. It's like Hanks is in charge. And then this is the movie where it's like Hanks is oblivious. Hanks has no yeah. idea. He keeps on stumbling ass backwards into victories, which is at such weird odds with everything you were saying, Jamel, about what Hanks represents. But I think that innate energy he has, which is not in line with the character, and in theory works against what the character is supposed to be, is why the movie works for people. Because you don't get uncomfortable feeling like you're watching an idiot savant, because there's that sense of, like, Hanks knows what he's doing, right? Like, this guy's just a pro. Should we talk about the uh, the other cast? I mean, I, I really like Gary Sinise in this movie. Gary Sinise did the best performance in the movie. He's so good in it. He is. And he's doing his thing, like, and that's not to dismiss his thing, but he has such a well of, like, sadness and rage, like, that he can just pull upon instantly. And his, like, clenched teeth disdain towards everything. Which is his thing, right? Like, that's his thing. Yeah. I would say is Gary Sinise is kind of a clenched teeth guy. Right. You, totally. You're going to bring him in. I know he on stage is like a Steppenwolf legend or whatever, but like in a movie, you're going to bring him in. He's going to clench his teeth and either turn out to be uh, a fair guy or the bad guy. Right. <laughs> right. Like, right. In, in, in like the third act twist. Right. There's a lot of Gary Sinise paycheck secret bad guy. He seems like the best friend for the first two acts. He ends up being right. the bad guy in thrillers right. for like four or five years after. And he's like, look, there's nothing I could do. Look, they had my wife in a, in the car. Look, I, what could I do? I mean, it's God and country. He's in Nicholas Cage. I swear I tried to be a good guy. He's in three movies with Hanks. I believe this Apollo 13 and the green mile, right? He's, he's sort of a, a frequent collaborator of oh, Hanks wow. is yeah. in that run. Yeah. He's good in Apollo 13. Um, yeah, he's so yeah, Lieutenant Dan's great. Lieutenant Dan is also, you know, Jenny gets every horror visited on her, but Lieutenant yeah. Dan is a pretty crucial character if you're going to embrace the more acidic reading of this movie, right? right. The um the see the scene after he after Hanks leaves the talk show or whatever, and Lieutenant Dan is um on the you know, meets him in the wheelchair yeah. and he says to him, um, they gave you the Congressional Medal of Honor, you an idiot who goes on TV and plays a moron, got the Congressional Medal of Honor. And that just feels like Gary Sinise 
or the character channeling someone like us. Yeah. Right. Critiquing the movie. Being like, what the hell is going on here? You know, right. he just met John Lennon in that scene. Like, <laughs> that, that's and basically got the- John Lennon to start thinking about no religion. Which, that right. that you fucking know, scene. Led to, right. Oh my God. That's so ridiculous. They're <sighs> saying I should imagine no possession. <laughs> but I mean, this, it, that's a, Ben, thank you so much for bringing that up because it's, it gets to sort of the the weirdness of this movie in that those two these two scenes are right next to each other. A hilariously stupid scene in which Gump inspires John Le- John Lennon to write Imagine, followed by a critical character in the movie c- kind of breaking the fourth wall and being like, "This is f- fucking stupid." This is the big breakthrough I had watching the movie last night. Uh, and then, uh, you know, sort of I, I was trying to reread sections of the book today, having uh, watched the movie freshly. Um, there's there's some weird correlation between like the the book in which he is more of this like Chauncey Gardner character, but also more of this sort of like unpleasant like is he the worst of america kind of guy Mm. versus the movie kind of turning him into homer simpson i've been watching simpsons way too much recently trying to watch all of it and that thing where like the the frank grimes episode which i contend is brilliant of course but where the show sort of like zooms out and says like wait a second, what are all the things we're saying this one character lived through who is a quote-unquote normal, you know, lower-class, middle-class man? He's been to space. He's been to space. He's won a Grammy. He's met, like, all these celebrities. He's, like, fist-fought two presidents. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And Lieutenant Dan is kind of Frank Grimes, where he's just like, this is fucking bullshit that the movie's about you. Why do you keep winning? This sucks. But the, but then Forrest Gump's reaction is just like, oh yeah, I don't know, like you know, like he's so without ego that it's hard to be angry at him. It's the same as the Homer thing, and there's that like watching the first season of Simpsons where Homer is like angry, and when they sort of yep. like soften he's, him he's down, so they dad. find the balance of just like, oh, it's wild that no matter what Homer does, you kind of never lose support with him. You know, you have these episodes where he does something awful or he's misinterpreted as doing something awful and all his weird experiences. You're just kind of like, yeah, he's just an everyman. And that's sort of what they do to Gump in this. But Sinise works as the one person who's playing like a real human being, not Gump's idealized version of someone. And also the one person who has like is embodying the anger of the actual experiences. Right. Right. Because Robin Wright's performance is also this sort of whatever, you know, magical angelics performance. Like she's not playing a real person, really. Mm-hmm. Like Michael T. Williamson is very transfixing as Bubba. Like, but obviously he's playing a bizarre caricature. Sally Field yeah. is kind of playing a bizarre caricature. Like yeah. everyone else in this movie is a is cartoonish. And yeah. Sinise, Sinise much like and Sinise in that opening scene when he's the drill, you know, he's their lieutenant and he's barking orders. You know, he could easily be cartoonish too, mm-hmm. and he's instantly not. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's the other thing. I mean, I I get why they did it, but the book it's like there are 40 plus characters that make some sort of impact on him. 
Sure. It's like a big fish kind of thing. Right. 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 The movie sort of boils it down to just those sort of central four, Bubba, Dan, Mama, and Jenny representing everything. Yeah. And Mama is just like constant fount of wisdom. Dan is like all the cynicism and anger until he sort of like comes to peace with it. And, uh, you know, Jenny is, is the angel who's constantly being punished. And Bubba is just like his mirror. Um, but, but they put a lot more on each character in the movie. Um, Dan is the only one who feels like a human. I agree. The Jenny, all the Jenny stuff, we've touched on this somewhat, but all the Jenny stuff is very, very troubling. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, I would argue indefensible. (laughs) That's, and that's the easiest way to just attack this movie. It's just like, yeah, how, how else am I supposed to read this? Right. Well, I mean, I think it's fair to read it if I'm going to, you know, again, if I'm going to play devil's advocate or whatever, you know, like she's, she's punished, but I don't think the movie is punishing her because she quote unquote makes the wrong decisions. I think the movie is showing how America punished people who dared defy homogeny. Look, right. Like it's like any moment of independence she seeks for herself. She's just like cast aside, but this is the whole thread of the movie that we're trying to untangle. Right. I mean, because, you, yeah, on that reading, you can have you have Gump as the get along to go along, follows rules, right. doesn't question, accepts what he's told and is rewarded. Everything's at face value. Yeah. Rewarded beyond anyone's wildest imaginations. Ever. Lieutenant Ever. Dan believes in everything genuinely. Right. And wants does, to die for his country. Yeah. Wants wants to be a sacrifice. And then. His reward for his belief is like a decade of torment. Right. And being ignored by his country. And and then Jenny, who is sort of, you know, the individual born into hell. Right. Born into hell, maintains this indomitable individual spirit, is also punished for you know trying to live up to the individualism that we say we value. And so yeah. Yeah. On that reading, the, the movie is, like, very sour. <laughs> yeah. And, and and as I said, all of that is created for the movie. Jenny, in the book, is just a pretty girl that he likes and sees occasionally. You know, she wants to be a musician or maybe an actress. But this thing of, like, as you point out, Jamel, Jenny is is almost always on the side that we now in the present know was empirically correct, fighting for the right thing. And she's punched in the face, you know, she's given some unnamed illness, you know, she, she comes close to the brink of suicide multiple times. She gets addicted to multiple different substances. She gets kicked out of everything she ever tries to be a part of, you know, it's, it's, this movie makes counterculture look so bad. Like it, I hate the way it, it portrays like, but that's the argument, Ben, is it, is it portraying it as bad or is it portraying them as be like treated badly by our country right like yeah that's the sort of thing we're grappling with it does both i mean it does both at different points i don't know i just think like the 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 way that they portray people who are involved in this political movement it makes everyone look like an idiot yeah they all look like makes it look like everyone just like go back to college like kind of people and you know what i mean to get back to my i guess my hobby horse of this episode which is that like you can't take away you can't take this out of the context of the 90s that was how the 90s thought about politics 
Right, right. It was it was all a dumb game, and right, like and and the '90s vision version of hippies is like the most cartoonish. That's interesting because yeah, protesting, right? Save the whales, like that was like right, kind of right. the vibe in the '90s. Like that's what I remember of people protesting. who cared about stuff. Right. They're dummies. They're suckers. Yeah, and they're all they all talk like this, man. Like you know, it's God, like, no Armageddon. Remember the rest. open of Armageddon yes, with him the opening of Armageddon. Balls. Yes, into Greenpeace boats. It's it's, it's, it's crazy. Michael Bay is taking his dick yeah. out, pissing on your face, and, and, and people are cheering. I mean, that's that's such a good point, Jamel. Which is like the the main countercultural movement of the '90s is the Gen X. The lamest thing in the world is caring too much about anything. Right. Thing, which means that you're you're disarming and sort of critiquing both the people on the, the culture and the counterculture for being too invested, right. you know? So in right. that way, and, it's yeah. easy to just slam Jenny in and like, well, I don't know why she get her hands dirty with all this shit. What, 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 what's the use of all these ideals she has? Like Forrest is constantly coming. You know, he sees the George Wallace, you know, standing in the doorway at the university of Alabama. He sees the, the, you know, he, the black Panthers and the protesters and all like, and he's never judgmental or, um, you know, he never, he never expresses a prejudiced thought or anything like that, but he also never support, you know, he's just like cheerful and polite and nice to everybody and doesn't want to get in anyone's way. And drinking Dr. Peppers. Well, yeah. There's that refrain that keeps on coming up anytime they sort of like foreshadow him meeting someone who was then assassinated and then show the footage of their assassination. Yes, right. They'll say like over and over again, variations on the same line pretty much. Well, of, I guess someone shot him. I don't know why. I don't know why. Right. This thing where it's like, it feels like the comment they're trying to make is, well, if you saw the world like Forrest Gump, you do understand it is silly that anyone ever murders anyone else. It is silly that assassin <laughs> assassinations happen. Like that's bad. We shouldn't do that. Strangers shouldn't shoot other people. But also Sure. It's, <laughs> right. It's like sure, but then it's also sort of applied willy-nilly to like both John Lennon and and Wallace, you know? Right, right. I mean, it also on rewatching it now, it made me think of how normalized it was that in history class we were just like well, you know, in politics, sometimes, you know, just politicians get shot, like, quite often. And that's just, like, kind of happens. Yeah. And now I'm like, what? Th that's insane. Like, that that was just the consistent thing happening to, like, figures in our history. It's so fucked up. It, I mean, it is, it, is, it is very striking to see in the movie. Because you, you, the ones everyone remembers are, of course, Kennedy, MLK, Malcolm X, and uh, Bobby Kennedy, but then you remember that no, it was it was you know Wallace was shot. They tried to shoot Ford. Reagan was shot multiple I mean, times. Yeah, right. It was sort of that was that was John Lennon. <laughs> it was like John, John Lennon. Lennon. It was right. It was common like Ford. It's like people just kept bringing guns yeah. to events that he was at, you know, and like whatever, pulling them out or pulling the trigger, and it didn't work. And everyone was like, ah, yeah, cost of doing business is being president. I guess like. I guess so that you, ends. It's it's, so you, it's like if you pick up on those things, if you if you focus your vision of this when you're watching this movie on those things, mm -hmm. the movie does does not feel like a nostalgia play. It feels like something darker. But I think again, right. it's because it lands at this moment when Americans are very much trying to look past those things and to think like 
things are better now. Like, right. Like there's that nineties thing of like, yeah, no, sure. You know, racism, sure. War, sure. But you know, come on, look around the cold war's over the Bill Clinton, like what aren't things better now? Right. Like it it was okay to have that kind of, no offense, but very naive, like view of things. I I also think, I, I mean, I was watching the performance trying to make sense of it and going like, what does this remind me of? And then I realized, Oh, it reminds me of Pee Wee Hermit. It's the same kind of thing. Where <laughs> just it, It's like, you know, when we did our Pee Wee's Big Adventure episode, we're like, why does this character work? Why is it funny? He is not riffing on any type of real human behavior. Like, it's all these weird characteristics that are not in, in sync with each other. It's not like he's that type of guy we all know. And Forrest Gump is the same thing where, like, you read the book and you're like, for better or for worse, you get a very clear picture of who this guy is. You can place him. And then you watch this, and it's like, it's all these weird elements that somehow work because you can't really pin them down to anything real. It is like he is this mythical, sprite-like sort of trickster character, but who also, like, doesn't know what he's doing, you know? It, much like Pee Wee Herman, where you're like, is he the only pure one? Is he an agent of chaos? I, I know I feel bad if I mock him because I can't figure out if he's smarter than me or dumber than me. I don't know if he's 13 or 87. You know, like everything about him is confusing. Like ping pong is a sport? Like what is this movie? The, uh, the Tom Bombadil of America. He's the Tom Bombadil <laughs> of America. Yes, Jamal. Like, he got sponsored. He had, a like, a cutout of him. Like, wh- who's following ping pong? What is this? That was a big... What is this? Ping pong diplomacy was a big deal at one point, Ben. As ridiculous as that that's that's sentence That's insane. So, that's so weird. Griffin, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm just curious. Has Zemeckis said anything about what he was trying to do with this movie? I is there a commentary? Like I, I didn't even think to listen to I, one. I got it on iTunes because there was like a Hanks four pack deal with three other movies that I actually like. Of course, <laughs> the movies with Tom Hanks in them. Right. It was a Catch Me If You Can, Road to Perdition. Oh, and Terminal. So it was two other movies I actually like. But um, there were special features, but there wasn't a commentary. I, I was curious. I really kind of wanted to hear one. I have the Blu-ray. Yeah. I was digging into different things that Zemeckis has said. And in particular, like, let me see if I can find this. But it, it, there was some sort of like compilation of different quotes from people who worked on the movie as to the meaning of the feather, which the feather is something yes. that solely exists in the movie, has no reference point in the book whatsoever. No, it's a Whereas, visual flourish, right? Sure, yeah. but I, you know, almost everything else in the movie at least has some vestige that it comes from the book. And the flower is so much a movie conceit, and it's such the bookend and, and becomes so much the visual motif of it um, that, let me see if I can find this. Well, there's there's quotes on that about the feather. Are you are you talking about that? Yeah. Like where they talk about the symbolism of the feather. You know, like the feather to me, Griff. I just think of it as like very symbolic of the, what the movie's about, right? Like this thing just sort of blowing through randomly, but having so much meaning if you like think about it that way, right? Like you know, it feel it feels like an appropriate motif to me. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, sorry, I'm tr- I'm trying to find this now. I was finding it. I was reading it somewhere else. 
Um, but but I do feel like he's always been kind of elusive in talking about what the movie means and what his intent was. I feel like no one's ever like sat him down and been like, so what the fuck, man? Like usually it's sort of like, so how did you get Gary Sinise's legs to disappear? Because there's so much to discuss about Forrest Gump. Right. just as a piece of filmmaking anyway, right? Like, you know, oh, yeah. it, you know, it does all this technical stuff that's so unusual for the moment, which makes sense because Zemeckis, you know, is a technical filmmaker. He's interested in that kind of innovation. So, like, any interview you find is so much of that, like, versus someone being like, what is your perspective on, essentially, like, boomer culture? And I found, I... I went on some rabbit hole and found this thing where they were asking him point blank about the feather because they were, whoever was interviewing him was citing so many other people who had worked on the movie or other critics and their readings of what the feather is. And and like my reading is the same as, as yours, David, which is just like, it's about the randomness of this whole thing. You just blow into anyone could end up affecting this much in the grand scheme of the world. If the winds blow that way. And he was just like, I don't know. It's just a feather. Like, he very much had this, like, I don't know, it's like a thing. It felt like a good way to start the movie. That feels like director shit, too. You know what I mean? Where That's you sometimes, thing. oh, yeah, you know, I, I don't know, I just thought of a feather, and I felt like that would be good. Right, but, like, but, they're they're full of it, like, you know. But in watching all these interviews with him and listening to commentaries and all the stuff I've been doing for all the other movies we've covered so far, he's usually more open in that way, and he's open in the sense of saying, he wants to now, with distance, call out what his intention was that people might not have read at the time. Like on the Back to the Future supplemental material, he's like, yeah, I really intended the end of it with George being so successful and them living in this clean house to be a pretty scathing indictment of that being seen as the ultimate form of happiness and like an 80s capitalist sort of yucky culture. But people took it at face value and then got upset that they thought it was an endorsement of that. So the fact that he's so open talking about something like that and with Horace Gump, he's like, I don't know, it's about a nice man. It's it's odd. <laughs> America was kind of, or Hollywood, was kind of addicted to, you know, you think of being there, you think of Rain Man, like these movies about like, well, you know, even like a movie like Awakenings, like, well, what if someone had like this unusual perspective on life wouldn't that be refreshing even though you'll never see the the world the same way again yes yes it's like you know oh they're special like and they're they're gonna they're gonna help us you the ordinary ticket buyer like discover new lease on things with their unique perspective and like forrest gump is kind of the apex of that it's the apex of that and then it morphs into what i would say is a new subgenre that everyone tries and no one really pulls off to the same level of success as Forrest Gump, although very few movies have ever been as successful as Forrest Gump. Uh, But the uh, quote-unquote ordinary man who lives an extraordinary life and this sort of whimsical mashup of tons, the Benjamin Button, the Big Fish. um, There was another one I was thinking of today. Uh, I, I think Big Fish uh, is a good one. Yeah. Uh, the Ben Stiller Secret Life of Walter Mitty is absolutely trying mm-hmm. to do this as well, although it's a much weirder version of it. And there was one other big one I was thinking of, but this idea of like you put a like major movie star, whimsical director, you know, it's sort of like look at their journeys, look at everyone they meet along the way, look at how it sort of mounts up, look at how they go through history, 
we relive all these eras and these different genres and these different periods and these different moods, this sort of like episodic sort of like Homer kind of odyssey. I, I like pretty much the movies that I just listed more than this, all three of them mm. by, by some good measure. I've recently come around to thinking I maybe really like Benjamin Button. I'm sort of reappraising it. Eric Roth's most personal movie. So he claims. Yeah. And that feels to me like the, inverse of this the thing i like about benjamin button Mm -hmm. is that it kind of ultimately makes the argument despite the fact that circumstantially this man is so unusual his life is pretty ordinary he is not a great man and all of his adventures don't really impact the world around him that much he meets a lot of people he sees a lot of things but he's not someone who's like creating a butterfly effect throughout the world in the way that Gump does. And I think that's one of the reasons people were kind of confused by that movie, because it's this big, expensive, ornate epic in which it's like, he's just kind of a boring guy who doesn't seem to have much of an interior life. And the thing that makes him happiest is to be with his son. Like, you know, like that's that, that everything pales in comparison to at the end, he's with his son who he loves and he seems at peace, right? You know, or whatever. He seems very satisfied. Can I talk about Eric Roth for a second? Please, well, talk about Benjamin Button. It's the perfect segue. Yeah, exactly. Like so, in the so that you know, before this movie, he's a Hollywood journeyman screenwriter, uh, and after this movie, he basically you know, and I think he remains like just one of Hollywood's powerhousey guys, right? Like like Steven mm-hmm. Zalian, like like Aaron Sorkin, like these just sort of like they you know they'll come in and they'll deliver for a price like you know very premium screenwriter types but his 90s i feel like he mostly like his follow-up projects to this as scripts are the postman and the horse whisperer which are both sincere oscary movies that flop big blank check flops from beloved movie star slash big directors costner right costner and redford exactly but then he starts making starts writing much darker much more melancholy bittersweet type stuff about america so the the his two collaborations with michael mann the insider and ali Mm -hmm. which are both great scripts and then munich which he co-writes with tony kushner for spielberg the good shepherd which he writes for de niro which is like a very you know, it's not it's not a nice movie, oh, but it's written in this kind of memorial, you know, elegaic kind of way. But like, you know, it's about the CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Benjamin Button, like he has he he's gotten much more this this move this script sort of sticks out weirdly when you think about his later darker output. Yeah, yeah, and and Button feels like a weird kind of counterpoint to this movie in a lot of ways yes um but but it's a movie that i think like pales under the shadow of people who like gump say it's no forest gump and people who don't like gump are like it's trying too hard to be forest gump yeah it is kind of a weird sister movie to forest gump i've actually never seen it it's not bad and it's also a sister movie to forest gump in that it's this kind of quiet tale of one person's experience of life but it's also this like kind of technical marvel that's like doing things no one had ever really pulled off visual effects wise you know what i mean it has that angle as well yes and fincher is like gen x zemeckis in a weird way like in that like he's this sort of nasty i love david fincher to be clear but like he's the very cynical you know 
but also very technically minded. It, but that's the thing. Mirror. It doesn't it doesn't have the emotional catharsis uh, that I think everyone expected a movie like that would have from something like Forrest Gump. Uh, I, I, did I give you my read on that movie? You may have privately. I can't remember if you did on air. That I think it's about uh, uh, trying to know your parents, who they right, were yes, before you, you, to- you were right. born. And, and Roth talked about it, like his parents died when he was making that, when he was writing that script. And like, that's, yes, that's why he calls it his most personal work. We got to do Fencher, man. Are there scenes in Forrest Gump we want to discuss that we have not discussed? I, we have we have discussed the film, you know, broadly, but is there anything we're missing? I like the shrimp bit. I think shrimp that's bit's funny. Good. Shrimp Come bit's on, good. that's good. No, Lieutenant Dan screaming at God is pretty good. <laughs> Just all those little Lieutenant, like that moment you tweeted at me yesterday, Griff, like him at the bar, at the bar, yeah, uh, while the confetti is dropping on him, him swimming in the ocean. You that know, moment and when finally he just, kind like, of being at peace. Yeah. Surprisingly jumps off the side of the boat. Right. The, the scene with the two of them in the apartment on Christmas, but particularly the moment when uh, the the women start calling uh, Gump an idiot and he gets so angry and comes to the defense of Gump, who he's been so irate at for feeling like Gump cursed him with this life for so long. That weird sort of like, misfit toys unifying moment between the two of them or like we're, we're both in this world that doesn't really know what to make of us. Even if you've somehow only experienced luck and I Frank Grimes and constantly getting shit on living underneath a bowling alley and above another bowling alley. Um, <laughs> I, I like that whole run of the movie a lot. Um, the scene I I'd like to unpack very briefly because for me, it's the whole movie in a nutshell, all this stuff, we've been talking about, especially you've been talking about Jamel of just like these things sitting right next to each other that you can't reconcile. Uh, the, the Abby Hoffman scene is like everything for me where you go. So this guy is like, as the movie presents, it is like an all American football star, right? Meets the president, then graduates from college and just gets a brochure and goes, Oh, sure. Not. But why not? Let let me enlist in Vietnam, right? The movie doesn't have this sort of looming specter of the draft, which the book does, and certainly was the main fear of that era. He just looks at the enlistment brochure and shrugs, goes off, becomes a hero, meets his best friend, saves Lieutenant Dan, gets the medal, and becomes a ping pong hero, right? Uh, so he spends, he's able to, like, after doing his one heroic act, spend years just going around essentially as a diplomat and a celebrity ping-ponging his way to freedom and away from danger. Then, you know, gets off the bus where there happens to be the rally happening, sort of stumbles into it backwards, is pulled up on stage by people think that he wants to speak out against the war, despite the fact that he's in full uniform. They push him on stage. And I, remembering so much of this movie vividly, despite not having seen it in over 20 years, went, okay, so there's no way I understood what this was at the time. There was no way I understood this was Abby Hoffman. There's no way I understood the political complexity of the Vietnam War and what he represented to this, these people and what they would be expecting him to say at this moment. How does the movie thread this needle? What does it possibly do? And then he gets up on stage, an interior monologue, he says, there was only one thing I had to say about the Vietnam War. He says, I only have one thing to say about the Vietnam War, 
and then the plugs get pulled. You don't hear anything he says. The audience is in stunned silence. And I assume the joke is what Gump would say would either be nonsensical or would be the kind of like marching orders that he had been following, which this crowd of hippies would hate. But this technical gaffe, his superior pulling the plug, spared him the crowd revolting against him. And then instead... Abby Hoffman is emotional. Abby Hoffman, heart, you know, on sleeve, like gasping, like, oh my God, man, you you couldn't have said it better. There's there's nothing to be said outside of what you just said. Everyone cheer Forrest Gump. And then the whole crowd blindly accepts the idea that Gump is the radical figure they want him to be on faith alone because they couldn't hear what he said. And the movie can't answer what he possibly would have said now. I, I think it's obvious what he would say, which is he says, well, I went over there with a bunch of my friends and a lot of them died and I sure didn't enjoy that. And like now I'm here in Washington. Like, you know, he just said what happened to him and to him, he's just reciting it. And to Abby Hoffman, he's like, what a critical, crucial indictment of what we've done to these people and what, but like to Richard Nixon, it would be like, and you did your duty, sir. And like, you'd shake it by the hand. And that's the weird fucking magic of Forrest Gump, like that everyone can see everything in it. And God knows what it's really about. But don't you think I, I agree with you that what he says is some variation on that, but don't you right. think that's like the ultimate trick this movie is pulling? Because yeah. yes, course, that's every what I'm time saying. he makes that's, a fucking yes. public speech, all he says is, I gotta pee. And so the movie says, right. like, we've set the character up well enough at this point that we're gonna pull the plug and let you write in your head the version of the speech that you would like, because if we wrote it, someone would find something objectionable right. in it. And right. we want to make the version that is completely cynicism proof. And we're but underlining also, that by Abby Hoffman, the most radical man of them all, loving it. So who are you? Are you going to say you know better than Abby Hoffman? Right. But also Tom Hanks wears a clan hood in this movie. Yeah. I, d- d- no, d- David, I think you're right. That scene, that, that scene is the movie. It's the movie. Not yeah, absolutely. I, I I'd actually I'd actually not thought about that, but that's yeah, that's exactly it's the whole fucking thing. And he lets you, you can read whatever you want. Into exactly. It. Exactly. Newt Gingrich can yeah. watch it and enjoy it as can. I'll, I'll let you, you know, do the work. Dennis it, Kucinich, who is who is right. to the you know, who is the opposite of Newt Gingrich in 1994. I don't know. Which I can't tell if that makes the movie is sort of the most breathtakingly cynical thing I've ever seen. <laughs> or, right. Is it? In some ways, that's, that's what's so frustrating about it. It's so <laughs> cynical. It, it is. I, I, I look. I ultimately don't like it. I think it's pretty insipid. But there's a lot I also am pretty captivated by with it. And it, you also just kind of have to like be stunned by it as an object becoming so successful and resonant with people, in spite of its overarching weirdness. No, I mean, I, I think that's the reason. That's the reason the movie matters. It's not. It's not its quality or anything. It's simply the fact that it, it, it is a part of American culture in this sort of like bone deep way now. That it's 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 its reception, its success, the extent to which it's. Whenever I, uh, whenever I'm sitting on the couch and my wife comes by to sit next to her, I always say, "Seats taken." Like it's just, it's part of. Yeah. It's just part. <laughs> <laughs> you dick. <laughs> 
it's part of like the movie is part of our language and part of our vernacular and that's why it's it it matters it's this is it's not nearly the same level but it's the reason why we study uncle tom's cabin a a pedestrian book mm-hmm. it, right. it, it's not a good novel no. but it's a novel that arguably changed the course of the 19th century in the United States. And it had this massive impact. It's worth trying to figure out why. What this podcast is all about, baby. Exactly. You, I mean, I feel like every every 18 months we go like, wait, is this what the podcast is about? But you in some recent episode said, like, that is ultimately what we're doing, right? We're, like, examining these things as pop culture objects. And this is, like, the perfect movie to view through that prism where it is just, like, Everything that's bad about it and everything that's good about it is sort of one in the same and inextricably tied to whatever weird magic it has over the culture for good and ill. The fact that we're never going to fucking drop this thing, that people are going to continue studying this thing, even if it's with complete ire or if it has a second win of like adoration. Um, It's just such a fucking weird object. And it is so bizarre that it then became the third highest grossing movie of all time. It, and number one for Paramount, except for, I believe, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen and Titanic, if you count Titanic, oh, sure. which you shouldn't because it's yeah. a Fox movie, but Paramount had... Anyway, you know. But um, uh, yes, and swept the Oscars in a transformational year, like, you know, Pulp Fiction, one of the, you know, 10 most whatever, you know, pivotal movies of the 90s and... You know, 94 is a great year. Ed Wood, Hoop Dreams, The Lion King. Like, you know, you got really good movies like The Hudsucker Proxy and Crooklyn. And like, but you also have like True Lies and Four Weddings and a Funeral. Shawshank, obviously. You have Reality Bites. You have Quisha. You have Clerks. You have Interview with the Vampire. You have all three Jim Carrey movies. You know, Jim Carrey emerges this year. Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber. Ben, you've got Clifford. Are those all in the same year? All in the same year, Jamel. Wow. They're like January, July, December. It's insane. Yes. No one will ever have a year like that ever again. It's a crazy year. In one year, and it's like the first movie he gets paid like $200,000 for, the second movie he gets paid like $2 million for, and the third movie he gets paid like $10 million for. The third movie, they just like sign over Hollywood to him. It's like, it's it's yours now. Exactly. Correct. They talk about if you can make this work. Yeah. They started negotiating with him for Dumb and Dumber when Ace Ventura was the first one to come out, right? Ace Ventura, then The Mask, then Dumb and Dumber. And and then by the end of the year, he has signed the $20 million deal for The Cable Guy, which will come out the next year. All three of those movies spawn sequels, spawn Saturday morning animated series. That is wild. In my head, that's all. That's like 90. It's like a, a four or five year period. It's, it's 12 months. And it's like Ace Ventura, surprise hit. New Line is like, oh, we should get Jim Carrey to do Dumb and Dumber. They start negotiating with him. And in the process of like developing the movie, before signing the contract, then the mask comes out, and they're like, we're fucked. We're fucked. He gets to name whatever number he wants now. And then Dumb and Dumber is the biggest of the three. And, and then, of course, the biggest movie in the mall in 1994, a little film called Blank Check. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> am I correct, as we do the box office game, am I correct in remembering that Forrest Gump comes out, becomes the number three highest grossing movie of all time behind E.T. and Star Wars, and then... Lion King surpasses Gump a month later. Uh, 
I think Lion King. Are you correct? They come out within a month of each other, and they were either they were three and four at the all-time box office North American. I forget which one was three and which one was four. Well, Lion King made more money than Forrest Gump, but okay. the, the thing is, I don't know in terms of you know the the record holders because that's not charted anywhere. Like it's so yeah. hard to sort of pick Fucking piece that together. As to like, boned us. I know, like you know who was top ten at what times, you know, all time. But, but yes, obviously, Forrest Gump, a huge sensation. It opens to, on July 6th, 1994, it opens to $24 million. It makes 330 domestic, uh, which inflated would be about $700 million today. Um, but, you know, like not only did it make so much money, but it had like colossal legs. It, it played all year. One of the highest selling soundtracks ever. Yes. Uh, uh, spawns a, a, a fucking still massive fast food chain, fast casual sit down restaurant chain. The th yes, absolutely. Yes, bubble gum. But the other thing, Griff, is uh, Lion King has already come out. It is number two at the box office and it okay. makes exactly the same amount of money in its fourth weekend as far as Gump does in its first. I just knew million. they came out within a month of each other and there was some crisscrossing where one made more and then the other one surpassed it. But yes, uh, wild. Wild that these two movies were out at the same. Um, the other thing, Griff, is that next week, True Lies comes out. So we've done next cool. week's box office. Okay. So number three at the box office is the best action movie of the year. One of the greatest of the 90s. So wait, just to clarify, Forrest Gump 24, Lion King 24? That's right. Okay. Number three is one of the best movies of the 90s? Best action movies of the 90s. Oh, uh, can, I, can I play? Yeah. It's Speed. It's Speed. The bus that couldn't slow down. Oh. What a great movie. Watch it again. Guess what? Still good. Seen it like 5 billion times. We should do Speed on Patreon, the Speed franchise. Yeah, we should do them. That's that's one they should do the Lego sequel for. They should bring back fucking Keanu. Why not? Speed 3 on a, on a right. train. Yeah. It's, yeah. E it's easy. Easy concept. You're on a train. On a bullet train. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm there. Like, sounds great. Like, let's do it tomorrow. Get Bullock involved. Do the the Elon Musk. What's the Magna Rail? Do Speed Three on a Magna Rail. Yeah, sure. He's on a fucking Tesla. I don't care. Right, <laughs> Speed Three Tesla attack. <laughs> All right, number four at the box office. I would say something of a forgotten movie. Hmm. Certainly, um, you know, not a hit at the time, but a pretty big movie. It's um, how to describe it. Uh, God, you know what? This movie's um, so forgotten that it's SEO is fucked by a completely different movie. It's mm. Mm. that's a hint. The movie shares a title with an unrelated film. No, with a TV show. It's a it's a thriller. It's got two actors. I like the house is being rocked in this movie. It's a TLJ. TLJ's in there. Ninety four. It involves bombs. Post Oscar. It's got one of. It's got a title where you're like, oh, that's like the title for a fake movie. Hmm. The director directed one movie that we've covered on this podcast. Directed one movie that we've covered on this podcast. Interesting, but but we wouldn't cover their other films. Is is that movie part of a franchise or was it a Ben's choice? It was a neither. It was a sibling's choice, and he's worked in two franchises that we could eventually do on the Patreon, I suppose. So it's a, Predator it's a Stephen Hopkins. Nightmare on it's Elm a Street. Stephen Hopkins. That's right. Um, yes. uh, what is this fucking movie called? I was looking at Hopkins filmography the other day. 
It's got a father and son, a famous father and son, both in it. There are real life father and son, both in it. Real life father and son. What's what's like the the setting of the film? What's the world of the film, David? Well, the main actor is playing like an Irish uh, terrorist. He is not Irish, to be clear. What is this movie? I, this, you can't really talk about it without giving it away. I'm sure that no one has seen it. Look, the movie is blown away oh, right, with dude. Jeff Bridges and Tommy Lee Jones uh, and Lloyd Bridges. Okay. I was going to guess Douglas. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Right. I mean, that's another obvious. Yeah. Has anyone seen blown away? No, I didn't think so. Okay. But at the time people went right. I don't know. That was like a programmer. In the nineties, maybe I'll away. watch it. I've never, I've never heard of it, but it seems like right up my alley in, in terms of a weeknight movie. Yeah, it's like a thriller. You know, J- Jeff Bridges is an Irish terrorist. Tommy Lee Jones is chasing him. Yeah, you got a problem with that? Come on, check it out. What a thing I missed that like you could be an ornery character actor in his fifties when supporting actor, and they're like, yeah, you get to headline or at least like yeah. co-star five years in, in a bunch of sixty million dollar summer release thrillers. You get to fight a volcano. Yeah, you'll do volcano. You'll do basic or the yeah. hunted, whichever one he was in. He was in the hunted, right? But he was just like, you know, obviously like you have like your man in blacks and whatever, but there was just so much Tommy Lee Jones either being the guy or the two-hander, like rules of engagement, the fucking hunted, double jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah, it's strange in retrospect to think that like I as like a you know as like a eight year old or nine year old had Tommy Lee Jones was like my favorite actor because of Men in Black. Absolutely, I also have loved him my entire life. It's also weird that like the equivalent Tommy Lee Jones winning Best Supporting Actor in the year twenty twenty, they'd be like, "Great news, uh, you get to be nineteenth build in Avengers Overtime. You're playing a nihilist." <laughs> you know like you wouldn't get that you get your own vehicles now right 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 yes yes for sure for sure i mean he would you know his vehicle would be like a epics original series or whatever he would he'd be checking into berlin station exactly number five at the box office is a comic well it's not a comic book adaptation it's a, a radio the shadow it's the it's the shadow i mean how do you set up the shadow uh a legendary bomb where they yeah. were just like, Dick Tracy, how can we do more Dick, Dick Tracy type movies? And uh, uh, Sam Raimi wanted to make it so badly. And when they rejected him, he made Darkman as his like bitter breakup album. A, a great, a great film. Great film. Darkman rules. Another, another guy we got to do. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> and then, and then like, I feel like 10 years ago, Raimi announced he had gotten the rights for the shadow and he was going to reboot it. And at the time it felt like too soon. You just did Spider-Man. But now I'd love to see Raimi show up and be like, hey, remember me? I make fucking superhero movies that feel like MGM musicals. Here's my Busby right. Berkeley shadow movie. <laughs> I'd, I'd watch it. Um, some other movies. I love Trouble. Wolf, which we've talked about many times. Oh. Baby's Day Out, we've also talked about many Ta-da. times. The Flintstones. The first Ta-da-da-da-da. movie Griffin thought was bad. <laughs> and chugging along at number 14 last year's best picture winner schindler's list sharing a box office with the next you know this year's winner wow zemeckis and spielberg won best picture back to back when you think about it that yeah. way that's crazy too right. like spielberg finally wins and then his 
great protege wins the next year. And Spielberg it's like, yes, we have finally Zemeckis. fully conquered. Yes, we, this is it. It's ours. Spielberg presents the award to Zemeckis. And there's a the moment where he's on stage and he looks at the envelope and he says, like, Bob. And it's like with the pride of a father saying you won MVP. But it's bizarre when you consider, like, that Spielberg just <laughs> gave Zemeckis, like, the fast track version. Like, he just did everything right. so much quicker than Spielberg did it in so many ways, even though he had a couple of flops at the beginning. Right. Wow. That's it. Forrest Gump. We did it, guys. All righty, Forrest Gump. We cracked the movie, or did we? Probably not. Yeah, we did it. Everyone knows how they feel about this movie now. Definitely. Everyone feels very clear about it. Um, can I just say, because uh, I couldn't even begin to dig into it. It's just too fucking dense and so much its own thing. I didn't want to spend too much time talking about Gump and Co., the sequel. But I just think it's important that people know that Gump and Co. is a book about, quote unquote, the real Forrest Gump, whose life has sort of been ruined by the fact that they made a movie about his life starring Tom Hanks that was a big hit and won a bunch of Oscars. And now everyone thinks that that's what really happened. It's like a Don Quixote-esque. The book is a sequel to both his original book and the way that culture has taken hold of Forrest Gump and turned it into something different. So it's Forrest Gump trying to outrun the shadow of Forrest Gump, the movie, being like, now everyone thinks I'm fucking Tom Hanks. I'm not. I'm Forrest Gump. I'm not that pleasant. Uh, It's a very, very, uh, very weird book. But it's all about, uh, uh, as they say, uh, Forrest is still running this time straight into the age of greed and instant gratification known as the 1980s. It's fucking insane. What a weird thing. It's got a lot of Wall Street jokes, right? A lot of Wall Street. Yeah. Fucking Wall Street. At the Coca-Cola Corporation. Well, maybe... Right, right, right. Maybe Zemeckis will do it one day. I just want Zemeckis to come back and make a sequel to every movie he ever made. (laughs) Contact 2. What lies further beneath? I'm just doing them all again. Hey, you know, but stupid is as stupid does, guys. That's a good point. And that's the best description for this podcast anyway. Uh, Jamel, you're one of the smartest people, uh, I know, or also one of the smartest people, uh, alive on the planet. And I can't believe you come and do this stupid show and talk to us. <laughs> every time. Very, very, very good. Uh. <laughs> every time you come on the show, I am perplexed. Every time you message us or tweet publicly about something you liked in an episode, it makes even less sense to me. I don't understand why you put your reputation on the line, uh, but it means the world. <laughs> Uh, well, again, as always, thank you for the kind words. You guys know that I love the show, uh, love to listen. Always grateful to be on. Um, it's a lot of you're fun. coming back. Open you're invitation. in the schedule for we 2021. You you're 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 a blank check guest. You're in that territory of we give you like four mini series ahead and just say pick anything <laughs> you want. Um, but but I'll also just say uh, you know I signed up for your newsletter some months ago. I'm someone who gets very stressed out anytime I receive any email, but your uh, newsletters uh, are always like uh, a, a, a nice little uh, antidote to the world. I feel like you have an incredible skill, uh, both because of your knowledge and your understanding of history to put things in perspective, but also crystallize very complicated abstract thoughts. The things that like keep me up at night where I'm just like, what is this? And you find a way to just sort of like pluck it off the tree and put it very, very cleanly and unpretentiously in a way that whether what you're relaying is uh, a sign of doom 
or a sign of hope for the future, at least makes me feel a little bit calmer that the thing has been put into work. So I, I thank you for uh, the work you do on it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's a, a true antidote to everything. Uh, and the world is bad. But Jamel is one of the good things in it. And Forrest Gump, it, it, we, it, the jury's still out. I don't know about it's, this guy. It's perplexing. It's perplexing. People should, I don't know, people should watch it. People should people should watch it with just sort of like an open mind to it. Because it is, it is, uh, my, my wife, she watched it with me. And she was sort of just like, I had not seen this movie in years. And it is, um, you know, she's like, I can't really get, get my head around what it is. And I think that's. I think it's an experience worth having. <laughs> I think that's accurate. Beautifully said. Uh, thank you for being here, Jamal. And thank you all for listening. And please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Thanks to Andrew Gouda for our social media co-producing the show. Thanks to Lee Montgomery for our theme song, Joe Bone and Pat Rounds for our artwork. Go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit. Go to patreon.com slash blank check for blank check special features where we're doing the alien franchise and other nerdy stuff. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember the exact schedule and go to our Shopify for merch, new merch coming soon at the end of the year. Tune in next week for contact, a movie that was supposed to be directed by George Miller. How weird that we end up covering these two directors in the same year. And as always, I want to leave you all off with a little merchandise spotlight. It's from the last page of Gump & Co. A little ad here. I'm just going to read it. It's the music, dot, dot, dot. Forrest Gump, colon, music, artists, and times. A three-CD-ROM music anthology. Best multimedia music title. Stands head and shoulders above other music offerings Suburb interview and performance footage, PC entertainment. This is a disc for everyone. Don Mem Multimedia World. And the highest praise possible in the era of peak CD-ROM, one of the most compelling titles, dot, 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 since Mist, Chris Shipley, Computer Life Magazine. Oh, I thought it was going to be Larry King again. <laughs> I Larry King, most com- most compelling title since Miss and its sequel, Riven. I love this CD-ROM. I, Larry King, can't stop playing this disc on my gateway. I'm still stuck in Mist. <laughs> Let me out. I can't leave. Not since Mavis Beacon taught me typing have I been so entranced by a floppy disc. All right. All right. That's it. We're done. Goodbye. <laughs>